you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talked to Anders Sandberg. Anders is a futurist, transhumanist, and author here at the Future of Humanity Institute. In our interview, we began by talking about the so-called Fermi paradox, which is this eerie mismatch between the sense that the universe is so big and old and full of planets that it should be full of intelligent life, and the fact that the skies are totally dark, that we've never observed any extraterrestrial life. Then we talk about transhumanism, which, as Anders puts it, is the view that the human condition is not unchanging and that it can and should be questioned and also that it can and should be changed using applied reason and with tools from science and technology. In particular, we hear about the case for improving human longevity and ultimately even ending ageing, and about the so-called status quo bias, which is the bias towards thinking that some terrible thing is morally acceptable just because it's normal or widespread. Um, Anders was personally involved with transhumanism very early on, so we also get to hear about what it was like being part of a movement that was taking off just around when the internet was growing up. Uh, And that led to a conversation about online communities and movement growth in general, like how and why political movements sometimes seem to spring out of almost nowhere. We also talked about micropayments, uh, how memes evolve, how to move entire stars with aluminium foil, and why refrigerators are underrated. But honestly, I'm not sure this one is truly summarizable. You just need to know it was one of the most enjoyable and wide-ranging interviews so far for me, and that we could have gone on for twice the time. Actually, one of the defining characteristics of Anders' research is that it's so wide-ranging and kind of impossible to pin down in a podcast intro, which is why we began by asking him to summarize his background and describe his work. So my original academic training was in computer science and mathematical modeling, which I applied to computational neuroscience, trying to make models of memory and the brain. That got me interested in in the ways we could improve memory and do cognitive enhancement. And then I ended up at the Future Humanity Institute here in Oxford, where I've been working on both the ethics and social impact of enhancing humans, how to think well about emerging technologies, very long-range futures, how to reason under uncertain, and of course, global catastrophic and existential risk. And that's the official stuff I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) I have a bit of a problem keeping to just that. Awesome. And I imagine one of the things that we will be talking about a lot this episode is aliens, and in particular, the so-called Fermi paradox. Can you briefly maybe lay out to listeners who haven't come across this term before what the Fermi question is and why some people consider it a paradox? Yeah, so bring your minds back to the 1950s, to Los Alamos, where the various geniuses from the Manhattan Project were having lunch. And they're having a conversation uh, about uh, a cartoon in uh, The New Yorker about where are all the waste bins in Central Park going? And uh, the cartoon is showing a little uh, green men from Mars stealing them. And they start talking about, well, what's the likelihood of intelligent life out there in the universe? And generally, they are fairly optimistic about that. And being 1950s nuclear scientists, they're kind of optimistic that atomic rockets are totally going to allow us to travel to the stars. And then Enrico Fermi suddenly just asks, where is everybody? That is the Fermi question. Because if the universe is really big and old, and intelligence can emerge in a lot of places, and it can also spread or at least make a very big fuss so you can detect it from afar, Shouldn't we be noticing a lot of such fuss? 
a lot of flying saucers or remote nuclear wars or at least ruins on other planets. Why are we just seeing an empty sky? Um, why aren't there any billboards on the moon? And that was a kind of awkward question. It's become known as the Fermi paradox because in a paradox you have some idea that is in tension with some other idea. Both can't be true at the same time. And in this case, we have this idea that the universe is vast and there is some probability that's probably not super low. And that means there should be a lot of intelligent life out there, and yet we don't see anything. So then people ever since have been trying to answer it and come up with uh, clever uh, ways of giving an answer to it. So it certainly seems like a paradox. And one reason you might want to answer it is just because it's really interesting and I want to know the answer. But could answering this Fermi question tell us anything about our own place in the universe? This is exactly why I ended up uh, working on it, besides the it's interesting uh, side. After all, the future of Humanity Institute is about the future of humanity. We're not the future of Aliens Institute. But we are one instance of intelligent life. Maybe the only one, maybe just one in a big set. So if we understand what happens to intelligent life, how common it is, that would help us understand a bit of our own position in the universe. And even more importantly, one possible set of answers to the Fermi question is, of course, intelligent life might not be that rare, but it destroys itself relatively quickly. That's something we might want to find out and try to find out a way of dodging. One of the papers that you wrote together with Stuart Armstrong uh, is called Eternity in Six Hours. Can you explain exactly what you aim to do in that paper and in particular um, how intergalactic spreading of like humanity kind of plays into all of this? Yeah, so the original 1950s thinking about uh, the Fermi paradox was based on, well, maybe aliens can travel around. Once you got the actual search for extraterrestrial intelligence that started in earnest in the 60s, that was mostly headed by radio astronomers. And they were mostly looking for signals uh, from aliens. And they're mostly assuming that, well, maybe the aliens are like us. They're basically underpaid alien radio astronomers watching the skies and trying to send messages. So there was a lot of research trying to figure out best ways of sending and receiving messages. And critics said, wait a minute, um, what, uh, what if aliens are not having radio astronomers? What are other ways of detecting it? One of them was Freeman Dyson, who pointed out that, well, advanced civilizations are going to probably use a lot of energy. So it might make sense, for example, to build a big shell around the star, or actually a swarm of orbiting solar collectors to get a lot of energy. We should be looking for the side products of advanced civilizations. Another line of thinking was, well, what if you start spreading? How rapidly will you spread everywhere and become very obvious? So there was early models by Carl Sagan and others that demonstrated that even if you have a fairly slow way of spreading across the galaxy, within some tens of millions of years, you would have settled most places that you could settle. Indeed, uh, Frank J. Tipler wrote uh, a paper with the title was something along the lines, Aliens Don't Exist, based on this showing that, yeah, it's a very stringent uh, restriction. If you get the alien intelligence sometime in this galaxy and it starts spreading, everywhere is going to be uh, filled with aliens. We would uh, probably have noticed that. Hence, uh, we can can be fairly certain aliens don't exist. But notice the hidden assumption in all of these discussions. It's all about the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. It's all about what's going on in this galaxy. 
Uh, and it's kind of understandable. It's rather hard to receive radio signal from much further away. And yep, distances between galaxies are much bigger than inside the galaxies. But what Stuart and me did was we just looked at what if we wanted to settle all the galaxies we could settle? How much resources would that actually take? So we started with this idea that if you send very big spacecraft, you need enormous amount of matter and energy to do it. But what if you send your small seed craft? So you might not be able to send this space arc full of uh, animals and bold space explorers, but it might rather be a little seed packet containing some nanomachines and a lot of information stored as a diamond lattice. It lands on an asteroid, it unfolds solar panels, it turns asteroid material into more solar panels, more machines, and before you know it, you have an infrastructure at which point, of course, these robotic systems can take other asteroids and build bigger and bigger things, including habitats and life. But mm -hmm. it might also be a machine civilization or what have you. The nice thing is, of course, if you have a 30 gram payload, then you don't need an enormous spacecraft. So instead of having gigantic space arcs, which are going to require ridiculous amount of energy, now you merely have one that needs a lot of energy to be sent. And then we point out that if you have this technology, building a Dyson swarm around the sun. Orbiting solar panels uh, is actually not that hard. It's basically the same technology. And even if you make a fairly wussy one that only takes about a third of the sunlight, you still only need about an afternoon of uh, sunlight to send off uh, all the probes to all the galaxies that can be reached. They might be coasting for literally billions of years before we reach uh, a target star and find an asteroid there unfold, build a little local Dyson sphere and send out probes to all the stars in that galaxy. So you have two generational steps. And while you only use an afternoon of sunlight to settle all the galaxies, another afternoon you do the same thing for all the stars in the Milky Way. And then you have a, a Dyson sphere that you can use for computer games or whatever else you want to use your Dyson sphere for. And the total amount of matter involved in this project is pretty tiny. We're talking about asteroid masses or a small planet like Mercury in every galaxy. We're not talking about gigantic space arcs with flaming fusion torches that you might see halfway across the universe. We're talking about small diamond objects. So this could be a very quiet way of spreading. But it, notice that it really, really makes the Fermi question much tougher. Because suddenly you could reach millions or literally billions of galaxies. And of course, if we could do that, well, somebody else could have done that long time ago. It would even have been easier because the universe was much closer together back then. Okay, so if I'm getting this right, the upshot is that it's even more feasible, maybe even easier than you thought, to spread very quickly with not much effort, not only through our galaxy, but between galaxies, and between loads of galaxies. And so if any alien civilization has decided to do that in the past, we almost certainly should see them now and we don't see them. And that's sharpening the paradox. Um, you might think, well, sure, it's kind of possible if some alien civilization, roughly kind of maybe just above our level of, you know, tech sophistication decided to do this, but maybe every civilization just decides not to because everyone decides to stay at home for some reason. Is that a good way of kind of avoiding the feeling of paradox here? Uh, it isn't. And it's a bit like uh, the old Groucho Marx joke about some bar. Nobody goes there because it's too crowded. Mm -hmm. uh, you need everybody to avoid going to that crowded bar for it to actually be empty. It only takes one uh, civilization to say, well, let's settle the universe. 
Maybe because we're unwise, maybe because we have peculiar ideas, maybe it's just randomness. Indeed, it might not even be that you need an entire civilization. It might be the alien counterpart of Elon Musk saying, we totally should do this. <laughs> and the problem is most explanation to the Fermi paradox of a kind, well, all civilizations decide not to do it. They're the strongest sociological claim ever. Imagine a sociologist saying, no human will ever do X. That is a really, really weird claim. And you're bound to have somebody just doing it just because of uh, they want to annoy that sociologist. In this case, it's all individuals in all civilizations of all types. Now, you need something stronger than that, which is kind of a weird thing to imagine because... Um, you need something that actually binds the behavior globally. And there are, of course, other ways of trying to answer the Fermi paradox. One is, oh, there are no aliens. We're totally mega unique, which is in another tension with uh, our observation that we shouldn't be too unique unless you're kind of a creationist and think that God personally put us here and, and deliberately made sure that there are no aliens. That uh, is a kind of odd uh, assumption because most of science is based today on the Copernican principle. We're kind of typical. We should be regarding us as a fairly typical intelligent species on a typical planet, etc. Now, things get hairy about that, which I think we will return to later. Mm -hmm. But it's a pretty good starting point. If you start by assuming that we're unique and we don't follow the normal rules, then what can we ever conclude about anything? Yeah, maybe one thing to pick up on here is that when you're describing how feasible it could be to spread very fast and very wide through the galaxy, we're not going to have biological humans or big kind of human size heavy organisms coming along for the ride. These are going to be very compact bundles of information. And maybe once they arrive somewhere, they could kind of unfurl into something that resembles physical life. When people think about spreading through space, I guess they think of something more Star Trek. You might also think, well, this this kind of image of like a very compact kind of bundle of instructions it sounds maybe a little too sci-fi or infeasible or ambitious um one way to make it sound more possible is to draw an analogy with nature and i'm just keen to hear you explain that well in general, it's worth noticing that the reason you don't need astronomical resources to spread life over astronomical scales is that life is all about information. Mm -hmm. uh, after all, uh, the smallest seeds, uh, they're kind of, uh, I think, in the microgram range. Uh, the, and uh, my, one of my favorite examples is an acorn from an oak. That's about one gram. And if you plant it in the right environment, after a century, you have several tons uh, of material forming this sophisticated system for gathering sunlight and turning that into more acorns. But there is something interesting here about the technological assumptions. Uh, many people say, wait a minute, you're assuming robots and nanotechnology, that's way too science fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, yet they're willing to think about space arcs. And part of that is, of course, how used we are to various concepts. But it could be that there is some technology ceiling. Maybe it's absolutely impossible to build nanomachines which is really weird, of course, given that we actually have in practice nanomachines in all our cells and biology. We are in some sense nanotechnology. Uh, you might say, well, maybe we can't make artificial intelligence, which is weird because we are a material system with intelligence. And mm -hmm. you might not even need the human level intelligence to make something that can navigate somewhat reasonably to asteroids. Um, so what is really going on is, of course, uh, we might think about various technology levels that we need to reach. And sometimes they are discrete. Uh, 
In order to get into space, you need to have a rocket that can essentially achieve an escape velocity. That's not trivial on Earth. You need a gigantic pile of very, very dangerous chemicals that you have gathered together uh, and organized in a very careful way. Otherwise, you will just get an expensive explosion. Mm. Uh, But once you can reach about uh, 11 kilometers per second of velocity, now it's not just that you can orbit Earth. You can go essentially anywhere in the solar system if you give yourself enough time. There is this technology threshold that suddenly opens up the solar system. We haven't quite crossed the technology threshold of thriving in space. We can put people up in a tin can and they can live on supplies we bring them from Earth. They can grow a few flowers and a bit of lettuce, uh, but they can't actually subsist up there. Mm -hmm. In order to actually settle the solar system, we would need to do that. We would need to have a way of doing a bit of mining and manufacturing. And these are things that we haven't done yet, but they don't look like they're impossibly out of reach. There is a fair bit of tricky engineering to solve, but uh, I think one could make a good argument that something just slightly advanced, uh, more advanced than the International Space Station could allow humans to live, probably to have children, and then the children move in into the new space station their parents have built, and gradually you get a slow spread of these uh, tin cans in space. That's not the grandiose way of settling space that uh, visionaries like Gerald O'Neill envisioned with his rotating space habitat, with yeah. something like rolled-up suburban California on the inside. This is going to be rather cramped and nasty, but as an existence proof, it doesn't look that uh, impossible. There are things to solve, like radiation protection, etc. But most of these things are fairly low level. The, the, the really interesting thing is, of course, there is another way of settling the galaxy without going really far, and that is homesteading the Kuiper belt or objects. So the solar system has this inner hot core that we're living in, where water can even be a liquid. And then, of course, you have the outer planets with a lot of frozen stuff. And then you get the Kuiper belt objects and the Oort cloud. So these are normally, people say, comets, but we're talking about icy asteroids, some of them really big. And if you could settle them, there is actually quite a lot of them and a lot of resources. Um, Now... To do that, you probably would need fairly good nanotechnology to basically take the carbon and other stuff, the rich in carbon, and turn that into habitats and uh, places where you can live. You also would need fusion power, very rich in deuterium. So if you can make a fusion reactor that runs on deuterium, you're set. Each of these bodies could sustain a society that is fairly biggish for hundreds of thousands of years. And of course, if you have fusion power, you can even nudge the orbit. So after those hundreds of thousands of years, you can come close to a fresh one that you move over to. Mm-hmm. Now, you can imagine a civilization emerging here. And since it might be distributed, it's unlikely that it's all going to crash at the same time uh, because we're going to have fairly isolated uh, the group. But yeah, spreading. If you can thrive, and life tends to have this exponential growth, you would see them spreading slowly. And sometimes the Oort clouds of different star systems overlap with each other, mm. which means that you might then get star hopping. And it turns out that when you do the calculation, it takes roughly 4 billion years before all the Oort clouds of all the stars in the Milky Way have been settled by this hypothetical mm. uh, settlement. In fact, at that point, you get into a real environmental crisis. The deuterium will have run out. Mm. So then they might have to settle those horribly hot planets at the core or build normal space habitats and do, do other forms of fusion. But this is an interesting example of that kind of island hopping idea Carl Sagan had. Instead of trying to travel very far, long range, like I did with Stuart Armstrong in our paper, you just go next door when next door shows up or where it's favorable conditions. 
And any form of life spreading like that would tend to take over in shockingly short time by astronomical timescales. We will jump back onto the Fermi paradox soon, but I'm wondering if it might be worth just stepping back and talking a bit about kind of what you're doing here. This is kind of imagination exercise where we're talking about what could be possible, but we don't quite know yet. It gets called exploratory engineering. Do you want to say something about what it is and also what it could teach us? Yeah. So I'm very interested in the outer limits of what we can achieve using technology. And it would be great if we know and knew the laws of physics perfectly, because then we could, in theory at least, say that we can use them to calculate exactly what we can and cannot do. Mm. The problem is we don't. Uh, we have pretty good reasons to think that you cannot travel faster than light. So it doesn't show up in uh, any of my work. Uh, I'm sometimes even pointing out, well, if you actually allow faster than light travel, then you have a problem that now the Fermi paradox became infinitely worse <laughs> because now we can get aliens from anywhere and including any when because you also right. get time travel. And by the way, the time travel also implies enormous computational abilities. So if you believe in the faster than light transport, you should also believe in various other very strange things. And maybe they are actually true, but it seems very hard to make good predictions about it. On the other hand, we know we can do certain things because we are actually doing them. We know we can make cars and clocks because we have cars and clocks. We also understand fairly well the scaling rules of uh, material strength. So if somebody asked, well, if I make a cuckoo clock that is 10 times bigger, how will it work? And you can calculate that. You can see what material strengths are needed, etc. So here we can use stuff that we don't necessarily fully understand because for a long time people were building things without knowing anything about solid state physics. That didn't stop them from making very good railway bridges after the first few fell down and they got the practical engineering ability. So you can scale things up. And use the things we understand of the laws of physics that we know is allowed, that we know scales, to make imaginary constructions that we might never want to actually build. But we can see where we to build a cuckoo clock a kilometer wide, it would need the strength of material of certain ranges. And we can say that mm, it needs to be made out of diamond, etc. So you can use this form of exploratory engineering to see upper and lower bounds for what you can do. So, for example, that uh, project about sending the space probes uh, to the stars, um, part of that was looking at, well, how rapidly can you, you know, build mining systems to build a Dyson sphere? Another question was, how well can you accelerate uh, probes uh, so they, they move close to the speed of light without overheating? Mm. So you take uh, the standard formulas for coil guns and rail guns and the similar ways of doing electromagnetic acceleration. And then you check what happens when you try to scale it up. Where of a limit. In this case, it turns out to be heating because uh, you're kind of moving a lot of energy into that little uh, craft. So you can't do it too rapidly because then it's just going to melt. So suddenly you get a restriction on how big uh, these uh, systems have to be. Now, this form of exploratory engineering can be done very rigorously. You can end up with literally having blueprints for imaginary technology. Uh, one brilliant example of that is uh, Eric Drexler's nanosystems, where he's working out in exquisite detail and does very careful calculations how various nanotechnological systems uh, could work. 
Of course, he couldn't make them, but he could show that if we somehow magically got these systems, mm. they would have these properties, and they're really, really promising. We ought to be going in this direction. So that's another reason to do exploratory engineering. So a classic example was done by the British Interplanetary Society in 1939 or so. That was, could you put a man on the moon and bring him safely back together? Uh, and um, it turns out that uh, they had a detailed model of a giant uh, solid fuel rocket uh, that could uh, do this and land. Then, of course, the war came, and uh, for a few years they weren't working on space at all. They had slightly other problems. But uh, right after, in the light of the new discoveries of the German V2 liquid propellant rockets, they did an updated version of it, essentially sketching out a better way of putting a man on the moon and getting him back again. This was, of course, decades before Neil Armstrong. And uh, the Apollo project, uh, project rockets were not quite the same. But it was a demonstration that given engineering, we actually do understand it looks likely that this could work. So this is a very valuable method of exploring the future. You can use current physical laws as kind of a likely upper bound, and you can use this as a lower bound. And somewhere in that shady domain between is where the actual limit might be for a super civilization that wants to go in that direction. I want to return our conversation a bit more now again to the, the Fermi paradox. And insofar as you kind of mentioned that it's this kind of conflict between these two concepts, one of just kind of the likelihood of alien intelligent life emerging and the other one being um, visible evidence of this thing. Uh, we've talked a lot about the former and not really about the latter. So you've described all of these different ways that we could imagine uh, alien civilizations spreading uh, or, or colonizing the universe in these different ways. You've talked about how a lot of these technologies are actually or seem actually feasible. Um, and maybe aren't that that crazy, especially given what we already see hints of today or what we see in, in nature. So yeah, this all really makes me wonder if we kind of have this really strong case for the, the first part of the Fermi paradox. Um, why is it that we don't have visible evidence and what might these explanations there be? Um, in particular, to maybe start off this conversation, I want to talk a bit about the Drake equation. And I was wondering if you could maybe introduce that first and explain what it has to do with the, with the Fermi question. Yeah. So the Drake equation uh, is due to Frank Drake. And this came up at a meeting at the Green Bank Observatory, I think in the early 60s, where he and the other people who were interested in searching for extraterrestrial intelligence were talking about how do we motivate to people that what we're doing is science and reasonable. Which, to be honest, is a non-trivial thing because a lot of people are totally willing to just reject it because that just sounds silly. And of course, one way of diffusing that is to make an equation. Uh, of course, this equation has its critics too. Uh, and it's still something that they came up apparently over lunch or something. That is a good guide to organize our uh, ignorance, as Jill Tarter, one of the greats of astronomy, put it. So the equation says that we take the number of new stars per year in the galaxy and we multiply that with the number of uh, terrestrial planets you would expect uh, in the system. And well, if it has planets, at this point people were uncertain whether most stars have planets or whether it was very rare. So there is also a term about the probability of even having planets. And then you multiply that uh, with uh, the probability of getting life per planet. And then you multiply that with the probability that the life develops into intelligence. 
and multiply that with the fraction of intelligent civilizations that uh, are in the communication window that uh, send signals that we can detect. And then you multiply it all with the longevity of the, these civilizations. How, how long do they exist? Mm. And now you get a rough estimate of how many civilizations should there be around in the Milky Way right now that we can communicate with or see evidence for. Mm. Okay, so we have this framework for figuring out how often we should be seeing alien life. And we just have to plug in our guesses at the parameters, right? And so we have lots of people guessing at the parameters um, you have this paper, Dissolving the Fermi Paradox, you wrote with um, Toby Orr and Eric Drexler, where you point out this mistake that almost every set of estimates have made in the past. What is that mistake? Well, there are, there are two kinds of mistakes. Uh, well, actually, there are many kinds of mistakes. <laughs> but, uh, the, the one we, we are in on is that people don't handle uncertainty in the right way. But it's worth noticing also, how certain are we about the numbers? Uh, so... The first few numbers, like the rate of star formation in the Milky Way, we actually know fairly well in terms of the people were guessing that right more or less in the 60s. A little bit by luck, but uh, it's not unreasonable. Uh, we now understand that, yep, most stars have planets. Uh, the, the number of the terrestrial planets per solar system, we're a bit more uncertain about, but not super uncertain. And then you get to the tricky ones, life. Oh, that's really, really hard to guess. Uh, intelligence. Well, we have even less evidence. Um, and of course, longevity of civilizations, which is a really important factor and actually led many of the astronomers involved in this to be early pioneers in the work on existential risk because they wanted to figure out what's the likelihood of a civilization collapsing. Uh, we also have a big trouble figuring out. Uh, and people are making guesses. And typically what happens is that they uh, boldly state a few guesses and then admit that some of the middle terms, yeah, I'm making this up for the sake of argument, but uh, this is what I think is reasonable. And then they end up with a number. And at this point, they say, yeah, this is, of course, based on guesswork, so we shouldn't take it too seriously. But of course, now there is a number on the page. You tend mm -hmm. to believe that number. And indeed, people have noted that you were kind of two schools of making guesses. One group tend to end up with about one civilization in the Milky Way. And then they triumphant and say, that's us. That's why we shouldn't be spending too much money on SETI. Because, well, there is, uh, there is probably nobody else. And then you have the other group that would get roughly the number of civilizations as the number of years civilizations survive. Uh, and they, they call, sometimes call the N equals L school uh, because of the name L for the final term. Mm -hmm. um, and they are, of course, generally more optimistic because it might be hundreds or thousands or even millions of civilizations out there. So we should definitely be listening to the stars. Uh, and then there are a few weirdos saying, no, no, it's super, super rare. Uh, so the average number should be very small, less, much less than one. And most of the time, they don't want to make that statement too boldly because that sounds also weird. Why are we here if we're so darn unlikely? But we'll get back to that part because mm -hmm. that uh, hides some uh, really cool problems. So the problem here is, of course, you're taking these very uncertain things where you don't know anything. And they're just multiplying together maybe the midpoints of your estimates. Mm. But you should actually be taking the full uncertainty range. So how likely is it that life emerges on a planet? We honestly scientifically don't know whether the probability is almost one, if it's an Earth-like planet, or if it's almost zero. 
It could be that as soon as you get an Earth-like planet, there's going to be chemical reactions on the surface, and uh, within 10 minutes there's going to be precursors to life in some puddle. We can't rule out that possibility. It might be that life is trying to happen on Earth or at this very moment, but it just always gets eaten by the existing life, so we never notice it. It could also be that you need this kind of combinatorical miracle. You need to have a very rare environment where you get rare molecules that then combine into these long self-replicating systems. And you need to have everything in the right place and you need maybe a hundred amino acids or nucleotides or what have you. And the chance of that happening is kind of something like 10 to minus 4,000 or something, mm -hmm. which would mean that life is super mega rare in the universe. It's a real miracle when it happens, but if the universe is big enough somewhere, it's bound to happen. But that means that we might have a range of uncertainty for the probability of life that is maybe 4,000 orders of magnitude which is an uncertainty range you rarely hear. There have been some people saying that the Drake equation is stupid because you have so many orders of uncertainty in what you're putting in. Uh, we would never use this in normal science, which is strictly not true. There is actually quite a lot of science dealing with very high uncertainties. Uh, but as Yale Tartar pointed out, it's a way of organizing what we don't know and seeing where it matters. So what we tried to do in dissolving the Fermi paradox was taking this seriously and actually run through with actual probability distributions and actual uncertainties and trying to see what happens if you plug in that kind of data. And the cool thing is suddenly we don't solve the Fermi paradox, but it kind of dissolves mm -hmm. uh, because we have to realize that our uncertainty range are very big. We know fairly well about the stars and the planets, uh, but we don't really know about the life probability. So even if we plug in fairly optimistic values that say that it's kind of a 50-50 chance that life emerges uh, on a planet, that's my average. But I have a big range of uncertainty. That means that the uncertainty that comes out is very big. So I can end up with that my average estimate of the number of civilizations in the galaxy might be a million, but the median one is 10. Mm -hmm. And I get 30% chance that we're alone in the observable universe. Now I have a probability distribution that's not unreasonable given the data we have in science. And it's actually not too dissimilar if I take all the guesstimates people have been giving uh, in the literature and just scramble them together. Instead of having the correlations that people un knowingly or unknowingly put in and uh, to roughly get the right answer. If I just take numbers that seemed reasonable to somebody at some point we still get this very skewed distribution. There could be a lot of aliens, but it's also fairly likely that uh, there are nobody around. At this point, the empty sky doesn't seem that uh, weird anymore. So we have this Drake equation. We have a framework for figuring out how ubiquitous life should be and how many civilizations we should see when we look up to the sky. And we can ask lots of people to plug in their best guesses, their kind of median estimates for the different parameters. And very often people come up with estimates like, oh, there should be millions of civilizations in the Milky Way. And if that were true, we should definitely expect to see a bunch of them when we look up to the sky. And then we, we look up to the sky and we kind of train our telescopes at the stars and we hear nothing. And you might think, well, given your estimate of millions of civilizations in the Milky Way, we should be really surprised. But what that kind of obscures is the fact that the estimates we get, the kind of millions of civilizations estimates, are actually just some mashed together of like unbelievable amounts of uncertainty. So although the kind of median estimate for the number of civilizations might be very high, um, it's not at all unlikely that maybe the number of civilizations per galaxy is like much less than one, and we're actually very rare. 
Um, and it dissolves the paradox because it's just like perfectly expected that we don't see anything given how uncertain we really are. That's uh, roughly our argument. You can take this a bit further too, because uh, up until the point where you start looking at the sky, you're kind of doing armchair astrobiology. Uh, We have just been compiling what people have been writing in books uh, and uh, the general scientific understanding we have on Earth. Now I open the window and look out and make observations. I observe that there are no flying saucer misparked on my street. I don't see any billboards on the moon. Uh, indeed, we haven't noticed any radio signals, etc. So now I can do a probability update of my very uncertain distribution. And that is interesting because now you can take that and do the statistics and kind of run it backward and say, how should that update our estimates of the various parameters in the Drake equation? And it turns out that the least uncertain parameters don't move very much because uh, I don't see any flying saucers. Uh, basically, the star formation rate is unchanged, which is great because if our understanding of astronomy were to change just because of the lack of flying saucers, something would be very broken here. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the probability of life, well, that is adjusted much more. And the, the reason is that the Drake equation, by multiplying together these things, acts as a kind of set of springs of different stiffness that you have strung together. So when you pull or push on it, it's the floppiest strings that move the most. So star formation rate is kind of a very stiff spring. We'd roughly know its value. It takes a lot of evidence to make us update that. Mm. While probability of life, we have so many orders of magnitude uncertain, so it's going to move a fair bit. And this leads to one interesting effect. Yep, an empty sky indicates that maybe life is less common. So I might move that one or two orders of magnitude downwards. It still doesn't change things much. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the spring or the term in the equation corresponding to life's average lifespan of civilizations, that doesn't move quite as much. It's still pretty uncertain. We got about seven orders of magnitude of uncertainty. But it doesn't move as much as the life one. So this in some sense means that the empty sky is not that scary for our own future prospects. So as Eric put it, the stars are not foretelling our doom. And that is good news because at the start of the conversation, one of the questions was, what could thinking about the Fermi paradox tell us about our own position? And we have reason to be hopeful, I guess, that the fact that we see nothing when we look up to the stars doesn't imply that we're kind of very soon going to run into some horrible catastrophe. Yeah. So Robin Hanson formulated this as the great filter question. He, he had a simplified version of it. So you have a probability of life emerging, probability of intelligence emerging, and probability that intelligence goes, goes off and does something visible. And we know that at least one of the terms in this equation must be super small. Otherwise, the sky would be full of observable stuff. Uh, now, if it's one of the two first terms, then we have an early great filter. Uh, and that's kind of good news for us, because the probability that we will go on and do grandiose things is decent. Mm-hmm. Uh, past performance is no indication of future performance, but still, it looks good. If it's a late great filter term, uh-oh, we're pretty doomed. So it's valuable to know what part of the Drake equation looks like it, it might be the answer. Now, we still have this big problem. We still don't know. So we actually should make actual experiments and observations. Mm -hmm. We need to try to investigate our life on other planets in the solar system. 
It's one thing if you find life on Mars or maybe in the oceans of Europa and you notice, hmm, it seems to be similar to us. It might have spread by uh, panspermia, asteroid impacts hitting Earth, spraying spores uh, across the solar system. Or maybe it started on Mars and uh, died out there, but Earth has been thriving. In that case, it doesn't tell us very much. But suppose you find that it was independently evolved. Then we suddenly know that probability of life per planet is fairly high and we're fairly certain about it. Mm. Suddenly we have a reason to be worried. Uh Uh-oh, either intelligence is rare or we're in trouble. So doing this kind of experiments uh, with space probes and uh, exoplanet uh, studies of their atmosphere is really valuable because this allows us to uh, uh, figure out our chances better. One thing I wanted to ask and may get cut, but I think it might be useful for listeners if you explain a bit more of the intuition behind why multiplying uncertainties just leads the Drake equation to go down. Yeah, yeah. Generally, there is an old paradox in probability theory Mm. uh, where you ask somebody, this was posed, I think, in the 50s. So you ask, what do you think about the chance of life on Mars? And people say, I have no clue. So I would probably have to give it Mm. 50-50. And then you can say, well, what's the probability of there being a breathable atmosphere on Mars? Remember, this is the 50s, so you could even imagine that there was one. Somebody would say, well, I don't know, 50-50. What's the chance of being plant, uh, plants on Mars? I don't know, 50-50. So then you string them along and have a long, a long set of 50-50 chances. And then, well, what's the probability of intelligent uh, life, which wouldn't require an atmosphere and plant life, etc. And then you multiply together and get a very low number. Mm. And that's kind of weird, because when you first ask them about their position, what about intelligent life on Mars? they would be giving 50-50. The reason is, of course, they're not doing a really proper estimation of probabilities here. Uh, What you actually want to do is do conditional probability. You want to actually be very careful about your uncertainty distribution and not just giving uh, the midpoint of that interval, because if you multiply together those midpoints, you get one result. But if you have a distribution, uh, typically that means something can be both high and low. And you get some cases where you multiply together all the low possibilities and some for all the high possibilities. So you get a spread out of uncertainty. And I think this is an important thing to be aware of as a rational person. That, oh, I should become more uncertain about some things when I combine the uncertainty, not less. The way to reduce your uncertainty is going out and making observations of the world. Sitting in your armchair and reasoning shouldn't make you more certain about most things. There are a few weird exceptions like logic and mathematics, but even there, there are interesting uh, demonstrations that one should be careful about just sitting in your armchair. You need to test things. So generally, when we do our probability estimations, we should always be careful to indicate How uncertain are we? Where are the limits of our knowledge? And then we can, of course, find out more and reduce that that uncertainty. But when just putting stuff together, we should recognize that "Mm, the limits of my knowledge might uh, act together in weird ways. If I'm very uncertain about the probability of life and the probability of intelligence, that might mean that actually life is super common and intelligence is super common, or they're doubly rare. Mm-hmm. One shouldn't just look at the midpoints. Yeah, yeah. So the fact that we are multiplying over 
uh, different variables which we're uncertain about is what really matters here. And as you explained, that can mean that our overall estimate just goes down like surprisingly quickly. Yeah. I've, I've got in my head here like kind of a, a bell curve distribution with like two tails. And the more you're kind of multiplying or the more uncertainty gets added, like the bigger the tails get and like the flatter the, the midpoint Exactly. Gets. So normally when we do uh, combinations of probability distributions, uh, they, we tend to add them. Mm. Uh, so uh, if I ask, well, what is the sum of uh, the, the, the tallness of all the people in this building that's a lot of bell curves we add together and it's going to approach another bell curve mm. it's going to have a kind of wide uh, range but uh, it's going to be rather well behaved when you multiply stuff together things tend to get more and more skew and those tails get way more extreme so there is a whole b- branch of the statistics dealing with this and uh, it's very fun if you like this kind of math to look at stable distributions uh, and the problem is the stable distributions under multiplication tend to be very heavy tail you get quite a lot of potential for very extreme mm-hmm. things there you basically mentioned here about um, when we when you said oh like what happens if we kind of find evidence of alien life or not and I find that such an interesting idea like what would for example be things that if we observe would make you update like way more in the favor of um, humanity kind of being doomed when it comes to space exploration or thinking that we can be like really sure that this can be something that happens like what would be like key observations for you there uh, so one possibility is a dark biosphere mm. so this is a cool name for the concept that there could be uh, other life on Earth, not based necessarily on DNA or with a completely different uh, origin. So it might be rather quiet, it might just be a few cells hiding in some crevice in the deep ocean, but if we could find them, which is kind of non-trivial uh, because most of the standard methods are kind of tuned for our kind of DNA, yeah, yeah. Uh, that would be a hint that, oh, life can emerge several times on the same planet with the right conditions. We should probably expect life in a lot more places. Mm. Another thing might be, of course, that uh, we get a triumphant press release from NASA that one of the rovers, or maybe from the Chinese counterparts, that their rover on Mars have found some real incontrovertible fossils. Bingo. And then later on, the chemical uh, analysis show that, oh, they're not based quite on our genetic code. They seem to be independent. In this case, we have a reason to believe, okay, life is relatively likely in the universe. We should be a bit more worried about can it become uh, intelligent. And of course, if that Martian fossil turns out to be something rather complicated rather than just some bacteria, then we have evidence for that too. Now, the really tricky thing is, of course, suppose now the Chinese rover rolls over a hillside and finds ruins. At that point, we have evidence for independently evolved intelligent life. And at that point, suddenly the great filter gets very tricky because, okay, life is likely and intelligence is likely, but uh-oh, it looks like at least one of the cases uh, didn't uh, turn, uh, survive. Um, now, you can get similar things, of course, by looking in other environments. For example, if it turns out that we find that some weird uh, low-temperature life on Titan, mm-hmm. that, again, vastly increases the space where we should even be looking for life. Um, but as long as it's very simple, I'm not too worried. Mm. I think it's indeed quite likely that life quite often runs into a dead end in the genetic coding system that might allow it to replicate but not evolve fast enough. Because it's not entirely obvious how rapidly life can and should evolve. Mm. 
Uh, there is some talk about the evolution might actually evolve towards optimal evolvability in an environment. Basically, you want to have error checking so your genetic code is transmitted somewhat faithfully to the future. Mm-hmm. But if it's too good, then you're not going to get enough mutation and variation so you can adapt to a changed environment. So there is an optimum, but you could imagine a fairly brittle genetic code that allows you to replicate in the right environment, but not evolve very fast at all. So then you might have this little primordial goo uh, thriving in that environment, but never becoming anything cool. Mm. We should remember that on on Earth, it looks like uh, life for at least 2 billion years was mostly unicellular. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, okay, if it can take two billion years out of a lifespan of habitability that is maybe five or six billion years, maybe on other plans we might have life that never managed to get out uh, right. of that uh, before uh, the sun overheats. So. so to make sure I kind of understand this correctly then, so the real question is, um, when we look for evidence or when we find evidence is like whether it indicates if the great filter is behind us or ahead of us. And if we find lots of evidence of there being unicellular life, but not of multicellular life, then that suggests that we've already passed the great filter. Yeah. And that should make us more optimistic. Whereas if we find evidence of like lots of life that is maybe uh, like us or just like a stage behind us, but none of this like kind of intergalactic um um, space faring species then that should make us really pessimistic because then that suggests the great filter is still ahead of us yeah. and we've got something to worry about but then again if we start noticing wait a minute that galaxy over there is uh, kind of covered with some industry Mm. Then we get suddenly good news again, because we know at least one civilization somehow made it. They managed to become a very big and very powerful and very grandiose thing. And maybe we have a chance of doing that. Mm. We still might not know how many would-be and wannabe civilizations failed at that. But we can see that at least one of them made it. That's kind of good news. So there is this paradox that some ruins on a planet might be very bad news for us. But finding the aliens actually, okay, that's kind of good news, assuming they're nice neighbors. I like the the idea you mentioned earlier about like meta-evolution, like evolving towards evolvability. It, It is a really interesting issue, actually, because evolution is in some sense, of course, not optimizing for that. It's always just optimizing for fitness and that you should have as many grandchildren as possible. But of course, if they adapt well to a changing environment, that is also part of fitness. So evolution is extremely myopic and short-sighted, but sometimes it comes up with tricks like sex, like modularity in the genome uh, that allows uh, organisms to do things well. And one of the tricks is, of course, to having a nervous system that can learn, which means that you can adapt on a timescale much faster than the generational timescale. Uh, And we have at least two examples of this on this planet, not just the nervous system, but also the immune system. Long-lived organisms have adaptive immune systems that quite often contain their own little evolution process trying to figure out antibodies for pathogens trying to get in. So this evolution of evolvability might be one of those trends that speed things up and might indeed be why, well, now we're intelligent enough to come up with ways of having ideas and letting our ideas die in our stead so we can do things much faster. We have an evolution of ideas. Mm. We record the ideas so we can even do a kind of Lamarckian evolution of deliberate Mm. modification of ideas, putting them into machines. And this speeds things up enormously and is probably leaving normal biological evolution in the dust because we're already getting ready to modify ourselves with CRISPR and our AI systems could perhaps continue that even if we flub uh, our own biological chances. So it might be that evolution triggers a process that's very non-biological and very, very different. Huh, that's a good answer. I was thinking about 
the way kind of the rate of mutation could change, the way DNA works could change over time. But really, you might expect just the unit of selection to change. And maybe the new most important unit is something like, you know, memes, because they just change and are selected for much faster than um, genes. Yeah, uh, there is a classic book in biology, The uh, Major uh, Transitions of Evolution by uh, Minor Smith and George Sent. Sent- I can't pronounce his name, it's Hungarian, uh, where they argue that there have been these steps that have been very powerful uh, and many of them consist of organisms or subsystems coming together into more complex things. So the original cells on earth, the prokaryotes, are basically a bag containing all the molecules uh, randomly. And when you get us eukaryotes, we have cells with internal structure. Indeed, they seem to have come about because several prokaryotes kind of started living inside other cells and got their roles and distributions. Then you got multicellularity and, and you got sex, which means you exchange genetic information in useful packages, which means that good mutation can spread across a population much mm. faster than just by trying to outcompete other lineages. So these transitions really, really matter. And of course, we're coming up with, wait a minute, we can take tribes and build tribes of tribes. We can coordinate in entirely new ways. Indeed, we are having many people whose own whole profession it is to come up with new and clever ways of coordinating other people. Well, this is a perfect segue because at some point we did want to talk about this paper of yours. The timing of evolutionary transitions suggests intelligent life is rare. Here's a place to start. The paper talks about observer selection effects. Can you just give an everyday example of what an observer selection effect is? Uh, well, one of the big problems I see uh, in being online is that you're getting all these TEDx speeches uh, from entrepreneurs and very successful people telling you how they became very successful. And we know empirically that much of that is just pure luck. But very few of those TEDx talks are going to consist of a successful entrepreneur telling you, oh yes, I had total dumb luck uh, and that's why I'm now a billionaire. Uh, no, he or she is going to be happily telling you about grit or this clever idea that you can express in 15 minutes talk uh, that really lead you to success. It's just that hundreds of people have been trying to do the same thing and they all failed. So the reason is, of course, we invite billionaires to give TEDx talks rather than the people who didn't become billionaires. Uh, okay, I tried my best and it totally failed. It usually doesn't make for a great talk. Mm. And we have a lot of these observer selection effects. Sometimes it's uh, because um, when I make an observation, that act happens for a particular reason. For example, I might notice that there is a full moon because that's kind of noticeable. I rarely notice when the moon is not full. Mm-hmm. Uh, you definitely don't tend to notice when the moon is new and uh, it's very hard to see. The result is that a lot of people associate the full moon with various other things. A nurse uh, that I know, uh, she was very confident in telling me that, yep, every time there's full moon, we get a lot of stomach cases at my uh, hospital. And I told her, well, you know, I read that at another hospital, they're claiming that we're getting a lot of boys born uh, at full moon. Uh, and she was just shaking her head. That's just not true. And well, there was this other hospital where a lot of girls that were born uh, every full moon. And... These stories can all not all be true. And actually, I even checked the number of stomach cases at her hospital. <laughs> and of course, it was totally normal. And she just looked at me and said, Anders, 
I see in this. I know this is true. And the problem is, of course, the data gathering she was doing was based on sometimes seeing the full moon through the window and noticing, oh, we have uh, some stomach cases. She had latched on to a false pattern here. Mm-hmm. In this case, it was a totally random pattern, but there might be other things affecting uh, stuff too. And this is, of course, particularly interesting when you start thinking about things that affect your own existence. I can only observe things compatible with me being around. Mm. Uh, When I look at the weather outside every morning, it cannot be 500 degrees Celsius. I wouldn't be looking at the weather in that case. Uh, I'm going to find something in the human habitable zone most of the time. At least once I might find something not in the human habitable zone, but but that's the end of observation. Um, And of course, we should not be surprised at all to find that we're in a universe with laws of physics that allow uh, uh, bipedal uh, mammals to be intelligent creatures or to be on a planet with life. Now, this is, of course, a real problem in the perspective of thinking about the Fermi paradox. So we know life emerged on Earth relatively early in its history. And normally, if you have a long span of time and something happens early, we should say, yeah, that's probably a likely occurrence since it happened early on. But in this case, we're also doing a biasing observation. We are life. We cannot be around on a planet where life emerged 10 minutes ago. Mm. We need at least some time to evolve from the primordial goo, which means that our observation of Earth's past is slightly suspect because of this. There is, of course, this very famous meme picture that people used to almost depict the observer selection effect. This is from a story from the Second World War, where they had this problem of, well, the Germans are shooting at our planes. And some of them made their way back, and now we need to put armor. But we can't put armor everywhere, because that would be too heavy. Where should we put them? And there is this famous illustration of where the bullet holes were. And the statistician just, it was walled, I think, in a point out, put them where there are no bullet holes. Not the places riddled with bullet holes, because the plane still made it home. You want to find where these gaps are. So I have an earlier paper where I talk about anthropic shadows, uh, where our existence in some sense precludes certain giant disasters in the past. There cannot have been an asteroid impact melting the Earth's crust and killing off the biosphere in our past because we're here. Mm -hmm. There can't even have been a kind of giant dinosaur killer asteroid the last few million years because then we wouldn't have been able to evolve. Mm -hmm. So our existence is in some sense creating this weird shadow preventing, in big scare quotes, asteroids from having hit us in the past. And the same thing probably for supervolcanic eruptions and other really big disasters. This is not because we have some magical power as observers and by our consciousness doing something quantum. It's rather those planets where giant asteroids hit, you don't get any observers. So out of the big universe, there are some lucky planets that avoid things. And there you get observers, whether humans or aliens, sitting around saying, doesn't seem to be that many giant asteroids hitting us. Mm. They could be wrong. We could be living in a super dangerous universe where asteroids typically hit planets every 10 minutes. But, uh, well, on some very rare planets, you're very, very lucky. Now, this is disconcerting for thinking about the probability of life, uh, because... If we can't trust the observation from Earth, what are we going to do? So the point of our paper is trying to figure out a better way of reasoning about this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's draw that out. So you mentioned that simple life emerged quite early on in Earth's history. And now intelligent life has emerged, it turns out, because 
we are intelligent life. And it looks like we kind of turned up on the scene quite near to the end of Earth's lifetime. So the period between life emerging to us kind of conveniently or suspiciously lines up with the overall lifetime of our Earth. Now, one thing you might want to take from that is that it turns out life, or intelligent life specifically, doesn't take too long. In fact, it takes roughly a planet's lifespan to emerge wherever simple life has turned up, right? Because we have one observation and it's taken that long. And if that's true, we should maybe think that life is quite ubiquitous. And that relates to the Fermi paradox, because if intelligent life really is that ubiquitous, we should expect to see it. And we're back at the point where we have a paradox to explain because we don't see it. But there's this question here. Is it really appropriate, given what you've been talking about, observer selection effects, to draw this lesson that intelligent life should take roughly a planet's lifespan to emerge from simple life? And of course, the obvious answer is no. So, so Carter did the original classic paper about this. He pointed out that the kind of time constant, the time you should expect until you get the intelligent life, could be anything. And it's pretty obvious that it doesn't have to be in any way linked to the lifespan of a planet. One is something about evolution and how life works. One is more about how stars uh, gradually turn into red giants. Uh, But because of observer selection effects, any observer will necessarily find themselves making the observation that, hey, I showed up before the end of the biosphere here. And uh, well, that seems to suggest a time constant for intelligence that uh, is on the same uh, order of magnitude as the lifespan of biospheres. Now, we roughly know that the biosphere is going to end in roughly a billion years because the sun is getting more luminous. Eventually, Earth gets overheated. Uh, And... We are kind of relatively close to that. Now, one interesting thing here is, of course, if it's just life and observers, then you could, would expect them to happen. Even if life is super rare, it must happen before the observers. So they basically kind of split things in equal thirds. But it could be also that we need extra transitions. Just getting life might just give you little prokaryotes that are not very good at evolving. Once they band together to form something like eukaryotes that are much better at evolving, then you would get things started. But you might need to pass through this very tricky step, which might also have a low probability. Now, the funny thing is when you do the math and uh, see the lucky few planets that end up with having uh, going through all the steps and ending up with observers, they end up roughly equidistant, statistically speaking. There is, of course, a lot of randomness between the different uh, random planets, but uh, this is roughly where they end up. And the more hard steps you get, the more you kind of get crowded towards uh, the end. Mm -hmm. So if we had a million super hard steps, we should kind of imagine ourselves to be very, very close to the end of habitability. If it's just one hard step, we could be somewhere in the middle without too much problem. So what we did in this paper was basically we took give the data on when the possible hard steps were taken. And then we just fitted these probability models to it to get kind of a, what's the overall likelihood of the parameters we get out of that. And that generally fits that there are a few hard steps. And these steps could be very, very hard. Uh, we can't tell how hard they are necessarily, but uh, that is still gives us some hint that, yeah, intelligent life looks like it's very rare in the universe. And the funny thing is we can actually use the bias data against itself here. Uh, 
We're making use of the fact that we know that there's going to be an observer selection effect here. We're getting this very peculiar form of bias, and by running the math backwards, we can actually get some estimate here. It's, of course, still going to be rather uncertain because we're still basing it on a single data point. Even uh, some fossils from Mars is kind of going to be way better than anything we can ever do in mm-hmm. our paper. But this is making the most out of the evidence we have here. Mm-hmm. So, so if it turns out that there are lots of really hard steps to go from simple life to generally intelligent life, and this is just true everywhere, then, well, first of all, intelligent life is going to be much rarer than you might otherwise think. But also, where it does emerge, you should expect, kind of on average, that it emerges fairly late, normally kind of as late as as possible. And we have this observation, which is that we have emerged really surprisingly late on Earth, because there's only about a billion years until the sun kind of swallows us. And so that kind of counts as evidence that maybe life is much rarer than we thought, and that there are lots of very hard steps in the kind of evolution from symbol to intelligent life um that's the right lesson and the wrong lesson is to think that life is easy because we emerged quite quite quickly something like that exactly just just one thing to maybe add there as well is that it could just be that life just takes much longer to kind of emerge than like planets have lifespans for so just could just be right that just life always gets wiped out before it is able to make that like jump to to intelligence yeah almost always so what happens is that you have a few lucky plants that get life and most of them of course don't develop intelligence anyway so there is no observer seeing them and a few rare ones end up with having intelligence emerge just before the end and they're super rare but the beings on these planets are going to look back and say, life emerged fairly early here. Oh, life must be easy. Mm-hmm. And we're around. Intelligence must be easy. Why are the skies so empty? Yeah, yeah. And point being that we are probably one of these yeah. species. So if this argument works uh, as I think it does, <laughs> that gives us some evidence to believe that some of the parameters in the Drake equation are probably fairly low. Now, this is still not reducing uncertainty as much as actually going out and digging for evidence does, but it helps a little bit. So we've talked about aliens in all of this kind of serious academic language, um, but most of the time when people talk about aliens, um, it's much more about are they coming to visit us? Are UFOs observations credible or not? And often this is kind of dismissed as kind of crackpot theories or something. But recently this has gained a lot of attention because the Pentagon released a bunch of reports Um, including previously classified photos and films of UFOs. And first of all, I was wondering what you make out of all of this evidence, if you even care, uh, and if so, where it kind of updates you to. But I think also like more generally about how we should um, think about these types of observations and especially in kind of a Bayesian way. Yeah, like um, how we should be updating on these kinds Mm. of things. Yeah, so... People have, of course, been seeing weird things forever. And we tend to package that into our culture. So uh, if you uh, read the Old Testament and uh, the visions of Ezekiel and wheels within wheels and flaming chariots and stuff like that, modern ufologists are, of course, happily saying, look, evidence for uh, ancient Mm -hmm. UFOs. Mm -hmm. But uh, he would have, of course, said, no, 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 that's proper angels. That's what it should be. In the Middle Ages, if you saw something weird, oh, that's just the fairies doing stuff. So we always package these unknown sightings into our cultural framework. So so the funny thing now is, of course, if I see something weird on the sky and say, oh, that might have been aliens, people will maybe not believe me, but they're not going to think I'm totally crazy. If I said, oh, I saw fairies up in the sky, people would say, that's weird. Anders, are you all right? (laughs) 
And the reason is, of course, we tend to try to find explanations that fit with our culture. The problem is, of course, that a lot of different things fit in. If you see some weird point of light moving around, that might be a balloon with LEDs. It might be fairies, it might be angels, it might be UFOs, it might be intelligent squid from the deep ocean exploring the surface world. It's compatible with a lot of different things. Now, the recent uh, Pentagon films, they mostly show weird stuff that could be almost anything. So when you want to update your beliefs, you should try to do it in a Bayesian manner. You, you say the probability of something, given the evidence, should equal the probability of getting that evidence if this was true, mm-hmm. times the basic probability you believe in that this could be happening, divided by the probability of seeing the evidence. Mm-hmm. Typically, we turn to balance two hypotheses against each other, like uh, the probability that we're seeing aliens given this evidence, divided by the probability that it's not aliens divided by the evidence. We want to know the value of that. Mm-hmm. If it's high, then it's kind of pointing us towards aliens. If it's low, no, not aliens. So if you run through that formula, you want to know basically the ratio of the probability of seeing that evidence if there are aliens versus the probability of seeing evidence when there is not aliens. So if I see a weird blob on the sky, I might not know what it is, but well, aliens could make it. But so could non-aliens too. There is kind of no particular things pointing in the direction of aliens. On the other hand, if that blob lands in front of me, it's a flying saucer and a little green man shows up and says, take me to your leader. At this point, the evidence is way more compatible with aliens. Although there is still some possibility that I just had a kind of break here and I'm now psychotic and I'm hallucinating like widely. So... I'm still not going to necessarily have to move all the way to, oh, aliens absolutely have to exist if I'm rational. But certainly that little green man is giving pretty good evidence. If also my friends are saying, why are you talking to that little green guy? That's further evidence moving in a direction. Okay, there is really a little green person here and maybe we should call the leader. Uh, Now, the thing here is, of course, that those videos are showing weird things. But we're seeing weird things that is compatible with most uh, possibilities. With one exception, one of the videos showed what's apparently a Batman balloon. (laughs) Uh, So we actually have an explanation that is kind of fairly straightforward. Yeah, that balloon is being sold in toy stores. It's kind of unusual to see it that high up among the clouds. Mm. Okay. Uh, that, that seems also to be a much more likely explanation that we have a UFO shaped like a Batman balloon. What's the likelihood of uh, a UFO uh, being uh, from an alien civilization being this kind of copyrighted logo? Mm. One parallel I want to draw here. This feels somewhat uh, similar to what you mentioned before in the conversation when you talked about updating um, terms in the Drake equations based on how kind of uncertain we are about things. So you mentioned that star formations we're pretty certain about. So if there is kind of new evidence or we kind of observe that there's not many uh, aliens out there, that doesn't lead us to like update those things like particularly much, but things like life. Um, emerging on planets or intelligent life in particular emerging. These are things we're really uncertain about. So they're more prone to like being updated um, to a large degrees when we have new evidence. And yeah, this kind of feels similar to what you explained just here now with the UFOs, right? Where if we are um, pretty uncertain about um, aliens visiting us, um, like just up prior, then that should indicate that we um, should be updating a lot more. Whereas if we're fairly more confident that these things just don't happen because they're very weird or because it doesn't make sense that we don't see aliens elsewhere in the universe, but we do see them here on Earth. 
then yeah, we, we should maybe like not be updating as much. Does that make, make kind of sense? Uh, oh yeah, it does. And of course, this can get very complicated. Uh, actually trying to update your beliefs in a proper way is hard. It mm. takes a lot of effort, especially those consistency checks. So if I'm meeting the little green person from the UFO, okay, I might be having a psychotic break or I might, I might have made the first contact. I can at least fix that by asking my friends, are you seeing what I'm seeing? The likelihood of them also having a psychotic break is relatively low. But mm. if I'm really, really conscientious, I might notice maybe I'm hallucinating that we're saying yes, but while in in reality, we're calling uh, for somebody to commit me to a hospital. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there are problems here. You need quite a lot of evidence to be really certain. But many things in the world are having these self-consistency checks. Mm -hmm. It's very unlikely that we're wrong about how electromagnetism works because so many of our devices are every day, in some sense, performing a practical test of Maxwell's equations. If they weren't really, really uh, accurate... They, these devices wouldn't work. So we need to think about our uncertainties and see where they're big. So the pr question is, well, I see something weird. Is that uh, an alien civilization? It seems like, okay, the weirdness might hint that the world is stranger than I previously believed. Mm -hmm. But it might not tell me much about whether it's angels or aliens or fairies or squid. I might want to do some tests, uh, perhaps. I want to, uh, to make better observations. Also, there is this interesting thing about dismissing uh, alien contact. How certain should we be about that? I'm generally very dismissive about uh, UFO reports because they fit in so well with human psychology rather than anything that would make much sense for anybody else uh, to do. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when you think about the earlier discussions, if it's easier to spread across the universe, maybe advanced civilization actually have it, and then they're not interfering too much with us. A little bit like the Prime Directive and Star Trek yeah, that yeah. states that you shouldn't be uh, messing around with the primitives. And they, of course, break it in every episode where it's brought up because uh, it wouldn't be interesting anyway. It seems like that zoo hypothesis, as it's called, is kind of fragile because it only takes a few alien teenagers uh, that uh, just want to bust people with their uh, flying saucer yeah, to yeah. break things. And you could, of course, try to explain the UFO sightings by something like that. It still seems to be uh, fail failing as an explanation because uh, it seems to be a consistent thing that fits with human psychology rather than anything irrational. Yeah, yeah. But still... You, you shouldn't totally dismiss the possibility that maybe there is a super civilization out there. It's just that it's relatively quiet for various reasons. Mm -hmm. I have one paper where I'm hypothesizing that uh, maybe advanced civilizations actually want to estimate the current era. It's too hot to actually do proper computation. Once you've done the normal material stuff as a super civilization does, you realize that the future is actually in culture and computation and playing the alien version of World of Warcraft. And you actually just want computing power. You could build your computers now, but the universe is three degrees above absolute zero. It's too hot. If you wait a trillion years, it's going to be at a much lower temperature and get much more computation out of the same resources. So right now, the super civilization is sleeping in and only left some robots to kind of watch over things, including checking for other civilization evolving so they don't mess things up. We could be dispersing the energy that was intended to play World of Warcraft in the far future. <laughs> Now, I find this a very fun possibility because I think being a computer nerd, but getting a lot of computation is great. 
I also don't think is a great explanation for the Fermi paradox because we don't see much processes preventing losses, enormous losses of matter and energy that would be useful in the far future. Mm. So I don't think the evidence points towards this. But it does explain that, well, maybe you have robots kind of watching over young civilizations and uh, not doing very much until the point when they uh, start planning to uh, pave over the universe or do something really stupid, at which point they might step in. Harshly or softly, the, the theory doesn't say. One small point I want to make um, is when you mentioned kind of here human psychology. Uh, that's interesting as well in that it maybe relates to one of the very first things you talked about in that interview here, which is like what would like space um, colonization actually look like? And it probably actually looks um, a lot more compact and a lot kind of smaller spacecrafts than what seems to be observed as well, right? Which are these kind of bigger or I guess sometimes as well um, just what we imagine UFOs or something to look like from media. And indeed, people's imaginations uh, or, well, people's report about the UFOs seem to follow quite a lot of our cultural ideas. Yeah. There was much more diversity in UFOs in the past. Uh, now people are much more into the standard flying saucer and everything. Uh, a lot of alien contact stories were all over the place. And of course, you still find it in a, if you read the right conspiracy or new age website, <laughs> where, where you have not just the little greys, which are kind of the most popular ones, but also, of course, the, the very Aryan, blonde Venusians or the reptilians and so on. Very whole genres here. And that is, of course, much that people retelling the same stories. Mm -hmm. But you don't get quite as many cigar-shaped things. We standardized it. Yet they never show up where you can get a good shot with a webcam or a cell phone camera. They're always kind of weird, uh, out of focus. And part of that is, of course, when they're in focus, you quite often need an easy explanation for what it is. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, why are people so interested in UFOs? I think that is also an important part. Mm-hmm. And this is part of our modern mythology. To some extent, uh, we have replaced the kind of Greek gods and the heroes uh, with the cartoon characters. Batman is our new uh, form of Heracles. Mm. And uh, indeed, um, many people are using them to reason uh, about the world and uh, mirror virtues and uh, sins in various ways. People are using Star Wars as a mythology, and it makes sense to kind of teach kids uh, about how to behave. Would you, when you grow up, you should f- follow the light side of the force, <laughs> and they kind of understand what you mean by that. Yeah, yeah. Now. The interesting thing is also that you want to maybe say this is real, not just nice comics, because it's kind of hard to avoid knowing that Batman isn't real. Gotham doesn't quite exist and uh, the galaxy far, far away is actually thanks to George Lucas. So many people would want, of course, to say, no, 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 the angels and gods are real or the next best thing, well, there are aliens around. And indeed, some people have been arguing very seriously that, well, if there is an old advanced civilization, we should totally ask it for advice. It makes a lot of sense, which of course leads to some of the interesting controversies in the community thinking about extraterrestrial intent. Mm -hmm. Should we try to send messages to them? And we had a vote in the UK SETI Research Network, uh, raising hands, kind of should we? And half of the room were dead set against it and half of the room were in favor of it. (laughs) And then we're just looking at each other. Yeah, I, I'm aware this is just going like deeply down a tangent, but um, one like video essay I absolutely loved, I think it's like called After Hours, it's a YouTube series by by Cracked, I think, um, but was about exactly like, oh, like what like role do like UFOs or like aliens play in like pop culture? And one interesting point there was that 
um, we are like really aware, like I guess in the West and especially in, in America and in Europe of just like how colonization happened and how like sometimes somebody can just appear with like tremendous amounts of like technology and can just lead to like a destruction of like whatever civilization or tribes were before that. And then that fear is like deeply ingrained as well with our obsession with UFOs that there's just like some kind of underlying fear of just a species coming along with just much better technology and then being able to wipe us out in a similar way that, that we had like done so in the past and stuff. I think that's interesting as well. Yeah, and it actually links up to something interesting about Western civilization itself. David Brin pointed out that Western civilization has this relatively unique property as a civilization of being slightly obsessed with being wrong. Mm. Uh, most civilizations have been very, very firmly confident that we are the center of the world. We, what we know is morally and factually right, and that's it. Mm. What has happened in Western civilization since the Enlightenment is that we have made doubt something very valuable. Actually asking, are we a good civilization? And tr seriously trying to find the answer to that and quite often coming up with, no, we're not good enough or we might actually be quite awful. We should replace ourselves with something better. That has been a winning trick. Because we have been inventing new institutions. We have been questioning old things. I think actually this is a very important trait. And then of course the UFO concern that maybe there is a civilization out there that could do unto us as we have done to others. It both fits in with a kind of guilty conscience. But also this realization that we are kind of fragile. It's very interesting to note that, um, uh, for example, China doesn't like disasters that uh, wipe out the Chinese nation. Existential threats to all of humanity is good as long as you don't show China disappearing. <laughs> uh, there is something in Chinese culture that seems to be against this idea that, oh, Chinese culture could be totally wrong. Mm -hmm. While in Western culture, that's kind of the starting point, And then we want to prove that we're right about this thing, at least temporarily. Mm -hmm. Now, David Brin talks about the meme of otherness. We have this idea that there could be other good ideas out there that we could borrow from other uh, civilizations whether they are human civilizations or ancient civilizations or even alien civilizations. And I think that's actually quite valuable. There is a degree of epistemic humility. Now, of course, most people, most of the time, go, don't go around doubting their civilization. They're in, uh, quite a lot of people are totally rah, rah, rah nationalists and my country right or wrong and totally don't disbelieve the science, mm. even though science is, of course, organized doubt and searching for what's actually true rather than just believing whoever is waving the science flag. But I think it's an important thing to recognize that the thinking about alien intelligence and alien civilizations are an important way of thinking about our own position, both kind of as a civilization on Earth among um, other cultures, but also, well, what are humans? What kind of thing in the universe are we? Yeah, I love this point that like one of the best predictors of whether your society is going to survive much longer is whether everyone believes that we've got things figured out already. And really the best way to... First of all, survive and also make progress, given that you've survived, is just this kind of constant doubt, like Popper style. We've probably got most things wrong. Let's keep kind of figuring out our errors and then correcting them. And then there's this point about, well, part and parcel of this organized doubt is looking to some other as like a source of inspiration or something. And it's making me think, right? So you're talking about, oh, we could imagine like alien visiting. We can like make films about aliens and about superheroes. We can look to other cultures that aren't our own we can also kind of just deliberately imagine cultures and kind of ways of structuring society for the like express purpose of learning from 
right? Like you're talking about exploratory engineering at the start of this conversation. You could do something like exploratory engineering, but for kind of culture or something or sets of values. Like utopian thinking, right? And indeed, one of the most valuable things is people setting up utopian communes. We actually know a fair bit about how they work by now. Usually they don't work. (laughs) It's actually a really valuable thing to know some of the failure modes of that kind of small societies and which of them that actually survive. So there are ways of thinking ahead on this. And this is, of course, like evolution. Mm. Indeed, this is a continuation, I think, of that evolutionary approach. Evolution doesn't work if you don't have variation and mutation. Uh, But then you need selection. You need to check what actually fits in reality. Mm. And of course, evolution is really myopic. It doesn't only care about the current generation. It doesn't notice that it might be sliding in that direction that is eventually not going to work for this species. Uh, We are a little bit better at thinking ahead and noting, wait a minute, if we start this utopian commune, given past evidence, they tend to crash. Maybe we can do something to fix that. The Amish people, for example, in the United States, uh, they have been thinking very carefully about how to maintain themselves Mm. as a culture inside a bigger culture that works very differently including not losing too many members that just leave. Because there are many other religious uh, groups that have found that, yep, they lost all their members, or at least their kids all joined the minority culture. Uh, Now, the Amish have found some institutional solutions that uh, make them much more stable. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that forethought applies, of course, in a lot of domains, and that's a sign of intelligence. Mm -hmm. Then the question is, is intelligence enough? Which I think is the big Fermi question. Mm -hmm. I do think that um, intelligence can potentially remake a large chunk of the universe. Uh, In my current work on uh, the book Grand Futures, where I'm trying to summarize uh, what I know about stuff, uh, I have a chapter about how to literally move uh, stars and galaxies. And it looks like you can reorganize matter up to about 20 megaparsec scale or more with tinfoil or aluminium foil, actually, because uh, that's uh, easier to get. Um, So basically you do, and this is a good example of exploratory engineering. How do you move a star? Well, first you place a lot of aluminium foil in in orbit around it. So you can make a hemisphere to reflect sunlight in one direction. So this produces a very, very tiny thrust. Uh, you can maintain this hemisphere in position by having little flaps and uh, so they can, uh, little fins to change the reflection so the pieces uh, stay together. You need a bit of electronics on it, but it's very, very light. Now, after about a million years or four, you're going to have a random encounter with another star, except that it's not going to be a random one because you put, of course, aluminium foil about both stars and are adjusting how they approach each other so they do a gravity assist. And suddenly your star is now moving tens of kilometers in a different direction. That tiny trust from the aluminium foil is just for very mild steering. You use this rapid encounters to really, really direct and speed around start. So at this point, you can arrange them and make them join up in binaries. You can eject them from the galaxy by flinging them past a central black mm-hmm. hole. And this way, you can actually move galaxies. Um, now, why would you want to do that? Well, that depends. Uh, you might want to dodge the Andromeda galaxy because it's coming right at us. But a more likely thing might be we want to arrange Andromeda Milky Way so they merge in a perfect way without any waste. And you might want to send a lot of stars together to form a kind of artificial hypercluster that can resist the expansion of the universe. So in a few hundred billion years, when uh, all the galaxy clusters just disappear over the horizon, you are still sitting in this gigantic mm-hmm. cluster and, uh, that has a lot of resources. 
Now the point is, if this happens or not depends on whether intelligent life decides this is a good idea. Maybe it's actually a really stupid idea and nobody should do it. Maybe some future post-human Elon Musk decides to do it because of big ego or some particular ethical theory. But basically, the structure of matter on this vast scale would be determined by intelligence. Mm. And the cool thing is, of course, that the overall structure of the universe right now, up until this point, has been set mostly by the standard physics. You basically get an overall structure set by the oscillations and the baryonic sound modes in the early universe, which create something called the end of greatness scale at about 200 megaparsec. Beyond that, it looks fairly homogeneous. Mm. Below that scale, you get these gigantic voids and filaments of galaxies. And the galaxies have a shape that is determined by how we cohere in the, because of stars and dark matter. Intelligent life is a bit like Maxwell's demon in that thought experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, by nudging things at the right moment, it can make things move into a very unlikely state. This is what we're doing all the time on Earth's surface. We're arranging uh, various materials in very unlikely states. And some of these states uh, are uh, like magnifying glasses that because of their peculiar shape, suddenly have a property that's rarely seen in nature. Others are like aggregating a lot of plutonium in a spherical shell. Suddenly you get a very rare thing that can explode. That doesn't normally happen. In laboratories, you get temperatures that are lower than the rest of the universe. Indeed, in every home, we have this device that seems to seemingly break thermodynamics, the refrigerator. We have carefully set up various liquids and gases in such a way that we actually cool things down. And this is, I think, typical for intelligence. So when you try to search for intelligence in the universe, you want to look for really unlikely states. Mm. And an advanced civilization might do this on a vast scale and turn the universe ever into more unlikely things. And I think this is good because the entropy is fairly boring, but life and the intelligence can create these low entropy states that are full of meaning mm-hmm. and uh, might be doing really surprising things. Yeah. And I agree that fridges are underrated. That's my takeaway. <laughs> yeah, um, one could probably uh, do an entire podcast just about fridges and how they link up to everything, uh, both thermodynamics and uh, human flourishing. Yeah, I mean, if you want to come on again, you're more than welcome to talk <laughs> about it. on fridges. <laughs> totally. Yeah, uh, and there are so many interesting questions about where are the ultimate limits of fridges? How close can you get to absolute zero? Why would you want to? What about if you wanted to cool down an entire planet? How do you make a fridge for a planet? <laughs> okay, um, let's talk a bit about transhumanism. Mm-hmm. Natural place to start is defining this thing, lots of ways of doing it, of course. But is there some way to kind of briefly summarize the transhumanist worldview? What's the kind of the core idea? So the core idea, I think, is questioning the human condition and saying, these parts are bad, we should fix them using technological means. Mm-hmm. So you can look at it from a history of ideas perspective and say, well, this is an outgrowth of Renaissance and Enlightenment ideas that we can make humanism. We can make the world better for people and people matter. But the traditional humanism was about education, maybe setting up the right institutions so people could grow and thrive. And transhumanism continues that by saying, yep, that's great, but also we should fix aging and make ourselves less stupid. And uh, why should we have just these senses? Mm -hmm. 
Now, you can uh, do all sorts of versions of this. So some people say, well, what about humanity transforming itself? It's, it's no longer evolution that is changing us, but we're doing auto-evolution. We're modifying ourselves. And you can say, well, maybe this is about kind of reaching some kind of next stage. Mm-hmm. You can say maybe a transhuman yeah. stage, but then eventually become post-human because we have enhanced and improved on ourselves so much that we're no longer like the previous species. We might actually recognize that there is a fundamental difference. Now, there is a lot, as you say, uh, there is a lot of different takes on this. Um, uh, and... Uh, Transhumanists generally don't agree on all of the takes, uh, which is kind of fun. It's also very annoying because when people criticize transhumanists, they're usually criticizing one group. And mm-hmm. then I can always say, yeah, but I'm not in that group. I totally disagree with them just as much as you do. Indeed, I found an interesting paper online where a Jesuit was arguing that transhumanists and Catholics should make a common cause against their joint enemy, the postmodernists. <laughs> and it makes sense. Yeah, the many transhumanists are quite staunch Enlightenment defenders and don't agree with many of the postmodernists. Except, of course, that you also get postmodernist transhumanists. There are the critical posthumanists, which are a completely separate group of academics uh, questioning the Enlightenment anthropocentrism. But I think that if you are serious about uh, becoming post-human in a transhumanist sense, you might still want to think a bit about that because when you decenter from humanity, you need to think about, well, where do I get my values from? What kind of being do I want to be? Does even me and want make any sense here? And suddenly you get into rather deep philosophical waters. So you mentioned that there are like lots of different takes on transhumanism. I'm really curious about what your own take is or what you see as kind of the core ideas that you would like to see happen and, and what you would kind of want transhumanism to be. So, so generally, I think there's a lot of human uh, limitations that are really bringing us down. Uh, so an obvious one is aging. Uh, there is not that much time for any human to actually learn how to be a good human, uh, to actually uh, acquire skills and knowledge and wisdom to actually do something good. And then our bodies start breaking down and we lose the energy that we might have needed to use that wisdom to use in a good way. And uh, our life projects are necessarily cut short. I think we should make uh, aging and death optional. Mm-hmm. That's one pretty obvious thing. Another thing is our brains. They're probably about the dumbest brains that could produce a global technological civilization. <laughs> uh, I think uh, we're normally trying to solve this by leaning on each other. We're doing a lot of very clever group cognition. Uh, but we have demonstrated that we can make things better, both in the sense of improving coordination by using uh, information networks and outsourcing to machines, but also sometimes improving the brains themselves. Mm-hmm. Similarly, there are many aspects of human existence that we might want better control over, like our emotions. Can we refine them? Can we make them better? And of course, traditionally, the answer has been, well, meditate on it or read these very good books for you. But obviously, we can modify our emotions biochemically too. We might want to look into what can be used here in a useful way. This is, of course, also dangerous and tricky because, for example, controlling our motivation might be a great way for focusing on finishing up that paper, but it might also turn us into workaholics that lose out on value. There is a very important question about how do you enhance yourself in a direction of higher value? Mm. And of course, like the philosopher John Horace, Horace you, you can say, actually, enhancement is by definition going towards higher value. So enhancement is always good. It's just that it's not always clear that something is an enhancement. 
nicotine is an attention sharpener, but smoking is of course rather bad for you and you get addicted. Mm. Is that a net improvement or not? It might very well depend on your situation. Yeah, on the aging thing, we were chatting about this recently, right? Mm. So if you're imagining comparing the kind of value of two good lives both lived to about 80 years or one good life lived to 160 years, when we're thinking about the value of living much longer than a natural, currently natural human lifespan, what's the case for extending Well, if one regards lives as interchangeable, then of course we might say maybe we should just aim at much shorter lives but uh, replace Mm. people at a higher rate. Many people would say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound good. (laughs) So we have actually an interesting situation where we might have a status quo bias thinking that this is the ideal length of life. But historically, it's been changing. It kind of doubled uh, over the 20th century in many parts of the world. And yet people uh, always felt that this is the right length of life. Mm -hmm. But more seriously, I think uh, the reason you don't want to have uh, two short lives uh, in favor of one long is that you lose something when people die. We're very contingent beings. Our personality, our uh, way of thinking and looking at the world is something that will never repeat. We have so many internal degrees of freedom that get organized by genes, environment, and our own uh, actions that you can't recreate a human. It's fairly easy to recreate a cell uh, with the same genome uh, and uh, it behaves roughly in the same way. If you plant a tree, it's going to roughly grow up in the same way. But when you get to more complicated organisms like humans, you don't get the same thing. Something that can never be repeated has been lost. Of course, some people maybe are nasty and have horrible lives, so maybe there is a good thing that it's not going to get repeated. But in most cases, I think there are at least some unique, very valuable things in a life that are irretrievably lost when that life ends. So in that case, that 160-year life avoids at least one such loss. Yeah, and one interesting thing I want to pick up on there that you mentioned at the start is really, I guess, the anchoring effect that just like nature seems to have and like setting our expectations that when we gave the example here, we focus on 80 years because that seems to be natural at the moment. But as you rightfully said, um, at many points in history in the past, that very much like wasn't natural. Uh, and you could imagine that people yeah, would have said 40 or 60 years or something instead. And likewise, and there's nothing inherent about those numbers being what it means to live a good life or what it means to be wise or, or to just assume that evolution is, is optimizing for these things. Yeah, uh, we're living in a society where uh, practically everybody is literate and have an enormous amount of education. Uh, by historical standards, this is an extremely unnatural state. It's very unusual. Yet we think that having people read and write, that's normal. We don't recognize that we're even the the couch potato who just want to watch Games of Thrones actually is a highly literate person by medieval standards. They are are a real scholar. (laughs) They actually know an enormous amount of non-trivial historical information, not just about the fictional world, but even things going into it if we're somewhat of a fan. Mm. And this anchoring is, of course, one of the big uh, battles about transhumanism. I mean, transhumanism is very good at being controversial. Questioning the human condition is bound to get people to say, wait a minute, I want to defend how it is. And one reason is, of course, that we get very uneasy if somebody questions the way we are. 
in particular, at some point in life, we have to confront our own mortality. And people typically construct some way of handling that with some equanimity. Uh, and it might be that you become religious or existentialist or just choose not to think about it. And then these guys show up and say, actually, in the lab, we're kind of slowing down aging and fixing mortality. You might not have to die, or maybe your grandchildren might not have to die. At that point, that person is kicking a bit at your existential foundations. And I get quite a lot of pushback You get very from people who get very upset and start defending stuff that would normally be undefendable, uh, like many of the bad sides of aging, because we just think that the alternative makes them way more uneasy. Mm. But it's kind of weird, because aging kills about 100,000 people per day. Mm. If there was a disease doing that, we would say, okay, COVID was nothing. We need to fight with with everything we got. Yeah. But now people are kind of taking it for granted and instead saying, why should we give any funding to those weirdos trying to slow down this? Yeah. Meanwhile, the bodies pile up. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it makes me think of the Nick Bostrom essay, right? The fable of the dragon tyrant as well, which we'll, we'll add to the show notes, but it's very good. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because this status quo bias, uh, we might, of course, uh, joke at it in some respect, but there is this disquieting thing that we might be accepting things that are really unacceptable. Mm. One of the beauties of the human condition is that we can adapt to almost anything. That's also one of the great tragedies because we can adapt to and get used to absolutely horrible things and say, this is normal, this is fine. Mm. So there, it, there could be these moral disasters unfolding around us that we're not even noticing. Mm. Historically, we have been accepting sexism and racism and homophobia. It might be that now we're starting to realize that, oh, factory farming is causing enormous amount of suffering. But it's still kind of a relatively small concern. But in a hundred years, it might be that people are looking back, why didn't most people rise up against uh, the chicken farms? Is the reversal test relevant here? Do you want to say something about it? So the reversal test is a paper by Nick Bostrom and Toby Ord, which is one way of dealing with this kind of status quo bias. So when you propose some enhancement, uh, quite often people say, no, 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 that's going to make things worse. In that case, if going in that direction makes things worse, shouldn't we expect things to be better in the opposite direction? If giving people intelligence enhancing drugs is bad for some reason, shouldn't lowering intelligence be a good thing? And if you have just status quo bias... Then you're, of course, going to be opposite, opposed to that one, too. Mm. Uh, in some rare cases, people might actually think that, yeah, actually, ignorance is bliss. Let's put some lead in the drinking water. But those people are very rare. Mm. So in that case, they are now in this tricky situation. They need to argue that we are at the optimum. A uh, hundred IQ points, that's the best thing ever. Mm. And that's usually quite hard to argue. You can try to refine this argument, but I think it's a useful way of dislodging from the idea that the current state is the only thing that it could be. Mm-hmm. And this goes for in a lot of uh, domains. So I mentioned the kind of cognition and uh, lifespan, but we might think about well-being. Right now, the human well-being scale might be something like minus 10 to 10. Okay, what if we could actually both nudge it up not just make sure we can avoid the agonies of minus 10, but move it so it's uh, maybe in a, in a range from 5 to 30, mm-hmm. or even better, uh, 30 to 100. So we could be feeling really good and not suffer. 
And at this point, of course, you have structural questions like, wait a minute, do we need some forms of pain to avoid damaging our bodies? Probably. But do we need from, to suffer from it? Could we construct motivation system that works on waves of bliss, uh, like David Pierce likes mm-hmm. to say? Uh, these are very good uh, questions. And I think they're both philosophical questions, like uh, is pain and uh, suffering along the same scale? So if we just move everything up nothing would change or is it that we're on different scales so you can kind of remove suffering but still have well-being mm-hmm. and it might be that well-being is not even the important thing we might want other things like meaning indeed this might turn out to be quite multi-dimensional yeah i guess it's doubly difficult to defend the status quo because if i'm trying to tell you that i know the 80 year lifespan average is optimal mm-hmm. I don't only need to explain why that happens to be optimal in the very big range of what's feasible, but I also need to explain why my kind of status quo defending forerunners were all wrong once the lifespan was shorter than it is now, but I'm right. Um, So we're talking about transhumanism. I am keen to talk a bit about the history of this thing because it's like surprisingly novel and we get to kind of witness this thing like figure itself out. And you were there when it was much younger. So can you just say something about what it was like watching these kind of ideas grow up on, you know, message boards and mailing lists uh, in this kind of recent history of transhumanism? Yeah, so uh, transhumanism has antecedents going really far back. People have been wanting to live longer and uh, feel better, of course, for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the epic of Gilgamesh uh, contains uh, King Gilgamesh's search for the herb of immortality and so on. And certainly you find ideas like this showing up much earlier. You find them in the Enlightenment. You find uh, an interest in blossoming in Britain in the 1920s and 30s uh, with uh, people like J.B.S. Haldane and uh, J.D. Bernal and Stapledon kind of formulating many ideas that later are taken up. Mm. But when I started to, to come onto the scene in the, in the 80s, I read books about cool American people thinking about cryonics, freezing people who were dead or trying to settle space. And then in 1991, I went on the internet for the first time as a student. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got relatively quickly onto this mailing list called the Extropia mailing list. So Extropy Institute was an organization founded by a bunch of early transhumanists. So they have met in the wider community of people interested in the future in the 80s. And this included the cryonics people and the life extension people and the pro-space people, the early nanotechnology pioneers, which were generally separate communities, but they started getting unified and linked up by this organization, which was also showing up at the time when more and more people could communicate using mailing lists. So we were sending emails to each other and having long conversations uh, about, uh, like, uh, can you rebuild Jupiter into a second star? What would it take? Uh, Can you do exploratory engineering about Mm -hmm. turning uh, a Dyson sphere into computers? What about these newfangled ideas in biotechnology? Now, we like to think that that was a golden age where we're all kind of coming up with very clever ideas and we're all very polite, but we had these endless arguments about gun rights. And there is this interesting issue about, well, the political angle. I think Extra Institute had very much this kind of Californian libertarian view, which I find uh, totally fine. I regard myself as a Swedish libertarian, which is, uh, which is kind of a weird uh, mixture. But What is the Swedish aspect? 
Well, mostly that I am from Sweden. Uh, but Finland, of course, being uh, this conflict-adverse Scandinavia, uh, I'm not willing to go full objectivist on people and be rude to them. Uh, I don't really want to take any conclusion and draw it too far. Uh, and many libertarian takes a great joy in doing that. Um, and I think in general, as I matured politically, I'm still regarding myself as a libertarian, but now I'm a Bayesian libertarian. I'm starting with this prior that, yeah, people should be free to do whatever we want, and governments are pretty dangerous things we should be very careful with. But if there's evidence that there is a market failure here, okay, let's try to fix it in the minimal way possible. Mm. Let's update in a sensible manner. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, that Extrapy Institute, those early days of the 90, in the 90s, were also formative in the sense that the web was emerging. Uh, Wired magazine was talking about that the future is extropian. People were getting involved. So gradually we got the World Transhumanist Association, which contained a lot of people who've been organizing in Europe and were not quite as California libertarian and and, um, had very different perspectives. And that led to a formation of a wider transhumanist movement, mostly online. But in the 90s, one of the most common uh, things you could hear is, oh, I've been a transhumanist for a long time. I just didn't know that it was called that. Mm. But people had found the mailing list or found my website. I'd made a big website, which was mostly because I'm kind of the type of uh, reviewer who loves to uh, link a big catalog of stuff. So I made this big catalog, uh, catalog of transhumanist uh, web pages and uh, papers, trying to link them together. So that made me a little bit of an integral part of a movement that way. Now, of course, this web page is long since uh, abandoned. I archived it. I think it's historically interesting. Sometimes uh, I cringe a lot when I read some of the stuff on it, but it was important to bring people together. And of course, as the transhumanist movement became wider, you got a bigger political spectrum. A lot of the leftists didn't all like the libertarians. On the Swedish transhumanist mainly, we had a flame war, which made us somewhat libertarian people decide, we're going to prove the left is wrong. We're going to start a commercial think tank with transhumanist goals and make money from this. And that's going to prove them wrong. If we have even given five minutes thinking, we would realize nobody on the political left would ever have thought that's good evidence for anything. But of course, we actually started a a political think tank and it actually worked quite well for a number of years and had slight impact in Swedish policy. So what happened was basically that many of the people who got their ideas in the 90s then didn't exactly grow up, but they started implementing and building organizations, doing things. Which is why now you could say transhumanists might be the state religion of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And it certainly has affected a lot of things, not always for the best. Sometimes we were woefully naive, and uh, then that, when naive ideas get scaled up, they don't work or cause interesting trouble. Many of the ideas we had about digital currencies freeing up people to live in an anarcho-capitalist utopia, mm. okay, Bitcoin didn't quite usher in that golden era. And when looking back, some of those arguments were really, really bad in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Still, it's interesting to notice that the digital currencies and the the various cool things you can do using blockchain, they seem to be really fruitful. Many of the concerns uh, about uh, artificial intelligence safety that started showing up because transhumans were one of the few groups of people willing to take superintendence very seriously then led to very useful research on AI safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because you might start out with an unusual angle doesn't mean that you end up with something useless. In fact, 
the transhumanist willingness to think that the future could be radically better also implies by symmetry that it could be radically worse, which means it's a fertile reason mm. to try to work against existential risk and be willing to think unthinkable scenarios. So it's not a coincidence that uh, I'm also doing X-risk research and that quite a lot of mm. old-timers in the X-risk community have links to the transhumanist community. Feel free to dismiss this as an ignorant millennial question, but do you think there was like anything special about this communication being like through the internet or um, really the internet being like the shaping place of this like transhumanist movement, either in, in, in allowing what kinds of people were able to access it or the very like type of medium of communication you had when you were discussing these ideas? Uh, the really dramatic transition was the availability of people across the world who could encounter each other. So... From the current perspective, and now I'm getting to stroke my old white beard here, uh, the 80s were a really weird era from the current perspective because finding people meant going somewhere or maybe even writing a letter, kind of almost like you would have done in the 16th century with a quill. Uh, Okay, you had a typing machine. Mm -hmm. If you're really fancy, you might have a dedicated word processor. Uh, actually communicating and finding people with similar views to to you was very hard if you had unusual views. Maybe you were lucky and lived in a big city so you could somehow find friends of friends with shared views. But it was hard to find the people who shared unusual positions. And then you got online and mailing lists and Usenet. We should not forget Usenet, which is probably rather forgotten by now, but that was the kind of first essentially global bulletin board system, allowed people interested in a particular topic to exchange messages about that. Mm. And that created online communities that then later, of course, became websites. And then later as blogging was invented, blogging is kind of shockingly late, actually. It came about in the late 90s. Today, of course, we would say blogging, isn't that something very ancient, some kind of pre-Twitter thing? But actually, the fact that you could make even a website that made it easy to make posts about your own things and make easy web pages and home pages, that's relatively recent uh, on this decade timescale. But this meant that people could form communities even when they have very rare preferences. And that is the joy and beauty of the 90s. A lot of people will say, oh, what happened in the 90s? And the answer is the web. Mm-hmm. The web essentially created the modern world where a lot of unusual communities formed. And then they are, of course, evolving. I think, for example, current transhumanism is a little bit suffering from the problem that it's having to compete with effective altruism which I think is great in many ways. In fact, uh, the fact uh, that many transhumanists are probably not spending as much time on being transhumanists as being effective altruists. Bingo. That's great. Uh, we want to see evolution of communities. Now, what happened in the night is was that these media, of course, allowed certain forms of communities to f- function much better than others. Mm-hmm. So as you invent new media, different forms of connection are possible. And also, of course, different forms of flame wars and disconnection and witch hunt. Uh, One shouldn't uh, imagine that these technologies are neutral. Uh, There is this brilliant uh, article by Scott Alexander, The Toxoplasma of Rage, where he points out, among other things, how the quoting system on Tumblr and to some extent on Twitter create this kind of wolf packs hunting down people who have the wrong views uh, by posting that this guy, look how horrible uh, this uh, view is. And you show it to your friends who are probably going to have 
your views. And then we're all kind of saying, this is a bad guy. You create this focus effect, which is quite destructive, and you get the little local witch hunt. How you design a medium affects quite strongly what you can do with it. Blogs are good for making long rambling uh, posts. Maybe they're a little bit less good for having the ongoing conversations. A mailing list might be good for that. But then you get flame wars. Mm. We were kind of struggling with that in the early 90s. Oh no, somebody mentioned gun rights again. Let, uh, let's try to ban uh, talk about guns from this mailing list. And then we have a flame war about whether banning uh, talk about guns infringes on our rights, etc. And everybody's talking about that instead of transhumanism. Mm-hmm. So one should definitely not imagine that the night it was a kind of golden age, but it was a formative age. As is, of course, any other period when you invent new media. I think we should recognize that we should be ready for a few new media every decade, and some of them are going to be just as disruptive and interesting as the current social media are. I just find that point about media so interesting. And I think it's just like the example of podcasts themselves, right? This is a bit of a meta point, but it's so interesting that it seems to be one of the few medias at the moment where you don't get as much of those rage wars, or at least people are able to interpret nuances or like different points very differently, even if it's the same person making the same argument on a podcast than they do like on Twitter. There just seems to be something about that medium that gets people to respond to it differently. Uh, yeah. And, and I think there, there are some natural reasons for this uh, because we're having a nice conversation here. If we actually turn into a yelling match, we're probably not going to post this. Uh, <laughs> We've cut all of the yelling bets out. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is a six-hour conversation. <laughs> yep. Yeah, if I'm sounding hoarse, that was because I was standing <laughs> on my chair uh, shouting at you. But the interesting thing is it both creates context uh, and it's very hard to break up the context right now. If I write something on a blog post, somebody can quote my most outrageous sentence and tweet about it. Look, mm-hmm. Anders believes this horrible thing. Without context, it's very easy to make me look like a racist or an idiot. Mm-hmm. And that can feed on itself. Because of this being relatively hard to do with sound and video, it's not happening. Also, the searchability is interesting. If I say a particular sentence right now, it's very hard to do a Google search for what I'm saying it in a podcast. In a few years, that's not going to be true. We're already getting good captioning systems. And of course, many of the best podcasts also have a lot of commentary and transcripts around. Mm. But the medium is the message, as Marshall McLuhan famously said. And different media allow you to do very different things. So being careful about what medium you use and even thinking about, well, when I'm trying to set up this community, what media should we favor? Yeah. That is a very valuable thought. And if you do it right, then you win. This is something I wanted to ask, which is when you find yourself in the early days of some new medium, so like early mailing lists, early blogs, early social media platforms, first of all, how steerable do you think these things are or do they just work themselves out naturally? And how much hope is there just for kind of like really good mechanism design in terms of just making flame wars less likely and making it more likely that you have really productive conversations like how sensitive do you think all this stuff is to just like early steering and how good could things be I I think there is both a chance of pushing things, but unfortunately, there is going to be a lot of randomness in the early steering. We can never really avoid that. Mm. Uh, After all, the structure of the internet came about very much because of particular projects. The French Minitel system was a real contender, but because of the French insularity within their own language and legal structure, it never spread that far abroad. 
but it kept on going quite long uh, after Web conquered the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And you can, I quite often bring up that in the early 70s, when people were coming up with the email protocols, if they had invited an economist, that economist could have told them, look, if it costs nothing to send email, right. my econom- mm-hmm. basic economics predicts that people will send infinite email, uh, you probably want to add a cost here. Now, nobody ever invited an economist to those meetings because uh, they were not thinking that economics was even a relevant uh, science here. Mm. But I think there is a real uh, value here in uh, trying to think ahead and getting people in from sociology and economics and other domains to try to see, okay, what do your domains say the obvious failure modes are? Can we do something about that? Then people invent solutions. So on mailing lists, people quickly realize that, yeah, sometimes you need a moderator or even several moderators uh, if there's a lot of traffic. On Usenet, people notice that every September you get a lot of new students at the universities. Okay, and they all will ask the same stupid questions. <laughs> Let's make this FAQ, frequently asked questions and post them uh, at regular intervals. And hopefully that's going to make them uh, not getting too confused. Yeah. Turns out that that was not enough, but it was a useful idea to gather uh, things together. Mm-hmm. Now, you could imagine, for example, an email system where it cost you a, a tiny uh, microtransaction to send things. That would have been an internet without spam. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was hard to implement microtransactions uh, in the 70s. It was hard to implement microtransactions in the 1990s, uh, even in the early noughties. So one great uh, theorist of uh, comics and uh, sequential art, as he likes to call it, is Scott McCloud. He made the very good uh, comic Zot, with exclamation mark, and he also wrote this seminal book, Understanding Comics, where he was analyzing the comics as a medium and really doing a good theoretical job of explaining what's going on here. And then the sequel was essentially, okay, what's the future of comics? And he realized, oh, the web. And, oh, we can do so many cool things. We have an infinite canvas here. We can do a lot of cool stuff. He was pointing at early web comics and even helping them. And then he got into this question, how do you actually make this work? Well, you need to pay for them. And he was also into microtransactions. And that's the big failed uh, prediction in that book, because we didn't get them. And the real reason is, of course, microtransaction doesn't work well uh, with credit card systems. Typically, the cost uh, of a transaction below a certain level is a loss for everybody involved. I'm obsessed with micropayments, so I'm glad you're talking about these. There's an interesting part of the history, though, where some protocol was suggested for making micropayments because it was just assumed that this would be just the de facto thing. And now still, to this day, it's just not especially easy, but it, it should be easy. Yeah, it should be easy, but the problem was the people developing the technological infrastructure didn't know enough about the financial infrastructure. They didn't even quite recognize that this is way more complex than just getting the right protocol uh, on the computer. You actually need banks to agree on things. You need to convince Visa uh, to do certain things. And that requires probably lawyers and other scary people. And at this point, the insularity to some extent of the computer world really hamstrung them. The funny thing is, of course, that now we're in this renaissance of micropayments 
Why? Partially because people invented institutions like Patreon. Partially because you got fintech companies finding ways of bundling uh, payments mm. in various clever ways. Partially because of <clears throat> eventually the digital currencies taking off. It's worth noticing that we were kind of going on all cypher anarchist in the 90s and uh, envisioning things. And the protocols were looking really good on paper. You could prove things, but nothing really worked. We didn't even get to use very much encrypted email. Why did Bitcoin take off? Well, it did something super innovative with the blockchain. That was a real insight. And it managed to acquire enough um, critical mass. And then, of course, things took off and created all sorts of other weirdness. But that's hard to predict. Yeah, there's this hard to predict network effect or critical mass thing where you can show something's possible in theory, but then you often have to wait a long time. And then some version down the line takes off. I guess there's like an analogy to neural networks where the theory was there far earlier than they ended up working. And they only ended up working, I guess, just because of scale rather than any huge breakthroughs. And then similarly, Bitcoin is its not like enormously elegant and it's not as if it has entirely new ideas there, but I guess it just had like the right timing and the right amount of buy-in. Yeah, I think people quite often imagine that innovations are kind of something just springing up complete and whole. But most innovation consists of taking 90% things that existed before, Mm -hmm. putting them together in the right way, and maybe adding, if you're really innovative, 10% of something new. And you quite often need that past uh, innovations because that makes it compatible with existing things. Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin, for example, is dependent on various encryption infrastructure that was already well established because of the web. And that infrastructure that enabled the web was actually subject to enormous battles in the 90s. We had the crypto wars. There were serious attempts by the US government to restrict the use of encryption by by civil society and make sure that private key encryption wasn't spread abroad. It was regarded as military munitions. And uh, the the fact that Bruce Schneier's book, Applied Cryptography, contained a CD with a source code meant that it couldn't be exported abroad with that CD because that was munitions. Now, of course, somebody just uh, copied down the code from the pages abroad and put it up on the web and kind of demonstrated that this doesn't work like that. But this was a serious uh, battle. It's worth noticing that public key cryptography was kind of invented in secret by intelligence agencies mm. and then leaked out or rather were re- independently reinvented in the 80s and early 90s. So you have this long backstory leading up to the point where suddenly Bitcoin can work. Mm-hmm. So in the 90s, we were thinking that digital currencies, we have the protocols, this should just be a matter of implementing them. But there was not a critical mass online. You couldn't actually make use of many of things seamlessly, which was possible much later. And getting back to the topic, when you think about creating communities and organizations, they also, of course, draw on previous ones. Mm -hmm. So Extropy Institute didn't just show up uh, randomly in Los Angeles. Uh, It it was the result of people interested in futurism, unified by uh, ideas shared through science fiction, through uh, various science conferences, uh, through Omni magazine, which was a science uh, science fiction magazine, but also contained quite a lot of art and uh, popular science. And when you start tracing things back, you find the branches coming in from the, the, the 60s and 70s where Timothy Leary 
who's today mostly known as the great guru of LSD, uh, but the, he was also very much into space migration, intelligence increase, and life extension. Of course, he believed LSD and psychedelics would be an integral part in this, but he also believed that, well, once enough of uh, people take uh, psychedelics, they're going to open their minds and we're going to accelerate our progress. Mm-hmm. The science fiction world contains a canon of ideas, and when you look at where they come from, you find a lot of popularizers of science. And when you come back to those uh, people around Bernal and Stapledon and Haldane, mm-hmm. so Haldane in his classic essay, Daedalus, which was based on a lecture held in Cambridge in 1925 or something like that, uh, he was talking about, well, right now physics seems to be riding high. Those quantum guys and that Einstein guy seem to be doing important things. And this century is probably going to get dominated by physics. The next century is going to be the century of biotechnology. And he's essentially outlining many of the modern concerns with biotechnology. What about uh, GMOs spreading? What about uh, us uh, modifying ourselves and our environment? What does this lead to? How do people react to the possibility of changing the species? Um, he was ahead of time, but also based very much on uh, thinking at the time. He wrote another essay, uh, The Last Judgment, which is one of the first really good existential risk uh, essays. He's talking about the end of the world and uh, points out that natural disasters are unlikely to be the end of humanity. Humanity is probably the most likely cause of the end of humanity. And then he outlines a little bit of a science fiction scenario where using tidal energy, because he was very concerned about the energy crisis, because we're going to run out of fossil fuels. Uh, Well, if you get all your energy from tidal energy, you're going to make the moon slowly spiral inwards. And if you do this too much, eventually it's going to collide with Earth. So he's sketching uh, this somewhat fanciful future scenario which ends with the survivors of humanity settling Venus and becoming a hive intelligence. Mm-hmm. We're talking 1920s here. Mm-hmm. And J.D. Bernal, meanwhile, uh, writes The World, the Flesh, the Devil, another yeah. really classic book where he's discussing ways we might modify ourselves. It's very much transhumanism. Uh, he's also thinking about how we can replace our organs with artificial organs and becoming cyborgs, which of course makes it much easier to live in space and build space habitats and eventually maybe upload ourselves into pure energy or something like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of these things became part of the science fiction canon, and even though the ideas might have gone out of fashion in some periods of time, uh, they were kind of kept inside the science fiction canon and influencing other people. Yeah. So it's very fun to trace where ideas come from and how people use and reuse them. Well, it's interesting because there's an analogy here, right? So previously we were talking about when technologies take off, and you were saying that very often the ideas are in place and they end up hibernating for a few decades and then maybe one extra idea comes along or a critical mass of users comes along and suddenly you get an inflection point where this thing totally takes off. And often it's really hard to predict when that moment comes. But, you know, as it is for technology, so it is, I guess, sometimes for kind of intellectual and cultural movements where you have these really early forerunners who are talking about this stuff that is kind of still weird and sci-fi now, And then the ideas just kind of sit and collect dust for decades. And then something changes where the ideas suddenly kind of spread. And it's also hard to predict. Often you get this in kind of political revolutions as well, right? Where it turns out that lots of people were 
falsifying preferences, like legalizing gay marriage, happened not at all or not very much for a very long time. And then all at once, um, I'm wondering if something could be applied there to transhumanism itself, because it's still oh, kind yeah. of neat. Uh, I, I think this is very true for practically all big transitions in history. You need to build up an infrastructure of ideas. They actually need to be good enough ideas that they hold together in a self-consistent way. Mm-hmm. Uh, an awful lot of ideas are not consistent at all. They're just random uh, musings of people and will never go anywhere. There are also some ideas that are just so well hidden that you will not find them easily. So you might discover them way after they would normally have taken off, mm-hmm. but they're so rare. So you might have something almost like uh, when you have super cooled water... Uh, you're way beyond the transition point and then something happens very suddenly. But quite often you have this gradual build-up. And this is, of course, a classic in the question about how you create social change. Uh, so there, one of my favorite essays is in Friedrich von Hayek's The Intellectuals and Socialism. He's writing this in 1945. He's basically one of the few classical liberals around. Everybody else at the faculty think that, yeah, planned economics and socialism seems to be the future. They seem to be doing really well. Uh, Although, of course, the fascists seem to have a good running for a while. But yeah, maybe the future is socialists. And... Hike totally disagrees. And then he wonders, how come everybody around me is feeling socialist? And he's arguing that this has a lot to do with whether you copy ideas from other you know, fellow intellectuals. And intellectuals spread it to society. So he's making this observation. If I, I want to make my ideas affect society, I need to first make them spread among the intellectuals. A few years later, at the Mount Pellerin in Switzerland, the Mount Pellerin Society has a meeting, and the Hayek and Mises and the others are kind of discussing this and thinking, this is a good idea, we should try to do that. So let's educate uh, academics and successors, build think tanks, and uh, gradually, gradually we keep on doing it, and then you get Reagan and Thatcher and the neoliberal revolution. But it literally takes uh, one or two generations. And more recently, just a few days ago, actually, there is a conservative scholar, John Greer, I think his name is, who did a very equally good article, indeed citing Hayek and others, pointing out that why did we conservatives lose the culture war? We were doing so well in putting judges in place. Uh, and the real reason is, of course, well, the liberals, they were the liberals in the American sense here. Um, they were kind of getting the kids uh, to become socialists and uh, really leftists. So the fact that our institutions are conservative doesn't help because in a while they're going to get replaced by socialist judges and then we kind of screwed over. Now, his point was, of course, you need to do this intergenerational work. You actually need to affect the ideas of unborn people. And this is, of course, what all moments do more or less effectively. The, the problem is, of course, everybody's trying to do it. Mm. And many of the most powerful ideas are not the ideas that people are struggling over. It's not the left-right ideas, but some completely different perspective. If you think about environmentalism, for example, concern about the environment was kind of growing. Evidence that things were going badly for the environment were slowly growing. And then you get crystallization points like uh, Rachel Carson's uh, Silent Spring that points out both poetically and uh, factually that, uh oh, we're having a serious problem here. And at that point, you can start crystallizing around it and build a movement. Now, the funny thing is, of course, when you look at green parties around Europe, it's very rare that they end up being the one in, sitting in power and having the prime minister. 
But that doesn't matter because all the other parties need to have an environmental agenda in order to avoid losing uh, voters to the Green Party. So now all the parties are actually Green Parties. The same thing for gay rights, or for that matter, anti-racism, abolitionism, and so on. You want to build up a nice set of ideas. You want to give evidence that this is the moral thing to do. This is emotionally nice thing to do. It's actually practical. We can actually free the slaves, slaves without losing our way of living. Uh, we can actually give uh, uh, women right to vote. It's not going to crash society. And we have a lot of moral reasons for that. And gradually you reach that critical point. It might be that we're getting this faster and faster. Mm -hmm. If you look at the time it took for female suffrage um, between uh, the first state in the United States uh, approving it and the Supreme Court kind of just making the law of land and then comparing that to things like allowing alcohol or abortion or in gay marriage, it seems to speed up. Whether this is a good thing or not is an interesting issue because it might also be that you make it jump the gun so quickly that it's not fully accepted in all parts of society. So you also lock in a lot of tensions. It's a little bit like glass. If you cool it down too quickly, you actually do get a lot of internal tensions that might make it crack more easily. And it might be that societies can only adapt so far. So you want to make sure that your transition is not quite too fast because then you might get pockets of resistance that you can never get rid of. Mm. You might actually want it to happen at a somewhat sensible speed, whatever that is. One thing I kind of want to add into the mix is admittedly uh, a bit of a half-baked thought, but when we're talking about these kind of takeoffs or like these sudden like changes either in technologies or these kind of like intellectual movements is as well like kind of the roles of earlier bubbles or fads. You often see, right, that people think something is going to really take off and then it doesn't. Um, Or at least you, you see like lots of failures. You had that, for example, in like the early 2000s with the dot-com crash. You had that arguably with Bitcoin as well. Um, But you can also get that in in some like kind of intellectual movements. And I think that's like a really interesting thing to maybe pick up on as well, that these bubbles are often necessary for these later takeoffs, that they get infrastructure in place or they help disseminate ideas uh, or at least um, build up a collection of knowledge that might not be useful or profitable now, but it allows people later on to draw on from this. Um, And even if, yeah, we have failures now that that might not be uh, super clear, um, they can still be really useful later on. Yeah. My own original field of neural networks is, of course, a beautiful example. Artificial intelligence and neural networks have been going through these bubbles a number of times. So on one hand, you had this enormous optimism in the early 50s with the Dartmouth conference, Mm -hmm. uh, essentially saying, if we spend a summer thinking about this, we might make some real progress. And we did, but it wasn't exactly solving AI. And the early ideas that, oh, within a decade or two, we could have human-level intelligence definitely didn't come to pass. And after a while, these big promises didn't hold up and funding dried out and you got an AI winter. And this has been repeating. Mm-hmm. Now, in some sense, that might have been good because uh, the field matured step by step. It was also a bad thing because many people left uh, things and uh, many things were forgotten because people didn't even want to mention artificial intelligence or neural networks after a particular embarrassing bubble. I vividly remember in the 90s talking to my advisor about those deep neural networks. That Schmidhuber guy had been doing some very cool stuff in the 80s. Maybe we should try it out again. And my vice advisor told me, no, it didn't work out. It didn't get anywhere. And he was totally right in 1997 uh, because we didn't have enough data to train uh, the networks or enough computing power to train them long enough to actually get the cool results that erupted on the scene in kind of 2012. At that point, things were mature enough to really be different. And even the fact that things were really different when you scaled things up, 
was a non-trivial finding. Nobody really expected that inside the field. There have been a few cases where papers claim that if I scale this up enough, things change. And that's cool, but we didn't see that as an overall pattern that was for that particular model. Mm. So... The problem here might be, of course, that uh, you also have that people inside the field don't know when you get a bubble. Mm. So the classic model for these bubbles is the Gartner hype curve, at least when you come to technology. So you start out with a few people talking about that this is really cool, and then it spreads, and then you get this exponential growth where both the early researchers are telling journalists about it, and they are telling others, and investors are getting interested, and it's in everybody's interest to hype things. Mm -hmm. So you will quickly get over the rails uh, because people will immediately say, oh, this is going to change everything real soon now. And then after a while, real soon now has passed and it's still not ready for prime time. Uh, just look at the uh, self-driving cars. In 2006, uh, people started to uh, hype them. In 2005, most people didn't believe it would happen at all. People were pointing at experiments saying, look, this is not going anywhere. And then the DARPA Grand Challenge demonstrated that, oh, they can almost do something, but it's kind of laughably yeah, ineffective. Yeah. But, oh, next year it was way better. And then the hype train started. Now, of course, we realize it. Oh, autonomous cars in actual traffic is a very tough problem. And we need to deal with some really deep questions about how many people can be allowed to be run over by autonomous cars, even if they're a good idea. Mm. But... This is forcing a maturation on uh, the domain. The, what typically happens according to the hype curve is that you get this uh, throw of disillusionment that people say, oh, no, we tried it and it didn't work out. And then people are still developing the technology and eventually get up on a reasonable plateau where it's actually doing something useful. Of course, some technologies completely falter because... Um, uh, it's just uh, too hard to maintain uh, an infrastructure or a, a core group of people developing them. Mm. Sometimes it might be that you'd rediscover them much later, but uh, sometimes it just uh, gets subsumed by completely different technologies. Now, the hype curve, I think, is one model. It's not always true, but it's a useful thing to recognize, both for social moments and uh, for many other things. And, of course, social moments have the other problem, that they need to compete against each other. They need to compete for interest. There is fashion. Many people want to have an identity. But identity might be much more important than what the movement is about. Uh, so you end up with movements that might actually not be acting uh, for their own good. The environmentalist movement was about kind of saving the environment. But then it also got linked to various other ideological uh, views. Mm. So the original environment were quite often very, very conservative. Indeed, you get very dark and scary forms yeah, of conservatism yeah, yeah. Uh, linked to early environmentalism, for example, in Nazi Germany, which actually for its time had some of the most extensive environmental protections of the era. And then you get instead the, the smallest beautiful and the kind of the 60s and 70s hippie view of how the future should be in a lot of environmental move, which means that you have a big tension now on actually the solution to carbon dioxide emissions might be more nuclear. Yeah, yeah. We, we did an episode on this. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's very fun to see some people who normally say, yeah, I think uh, climate change is the top thing. And then I ask, so you're in favor of nuclear? And you just see them stopping the tracks because they can't bring themselves to think that thought, yeah. which should be a thinkable thing. They might react it for other reasons, but they're just taking up this mix of ideological things. And that's, of course, a problem for many movements. Transhumanism is included here. Transhumanism doesn't have a core value theory. 
And I think that is a real problem. It's also a practical thing for transhumanists because that means you can link it to any value fear. But it means that you have Christian transhumanists and fascist transhumanists and virtue ethics transhumanists uh, and the utilitarian transhumanists and cosmic transhumanists. Mm-hmm. And deep down, they don't at all agree on why, why we should be doing this. Do you have any views like on how this might relate to effective altruism, um, either in terms of like hypes or like kind of winters and, and summers of ideas, or as you mentioned, kind of these these core values? So I think effective altruism, in some sense, has a core value theory, at least from the start. It starts out in a very utilitarian, consequentialist corner yeah. of the map. Now, can you be a conservative effective altruist? Totally. You can uh, construct that view. Can you be a socialist uh, effective altruist? Yep, no problem. Uh, can you be a virtue ethics uh, effective altruist? Why not? I think you can construct that. Uh, you can link it up and uh, construct these other views. But when you start out in a particular uh, tribal or ideological corner, it might be hard to escape that. I think that is what we're seeing with the environmentalist movement. They're kind of stuck right now because we have become partially part of the left, which means that conservative environmentalism uh, has nowhere to go. It needs to be either dropping conservative or dropping environmentalism. And I think there is a real risk, of course, that one lets this minor headache stop oneself. Effective altruism has some relatively abstract core goals, and you want to infect them in a lot of other groups. The success of the Green Parties in Europe have been very much about making every party, regardless of what their ideology is, actually trying to do something good for the environment. And similarly, you could imagine if you had the same situation of effective altruism, you want all of them, regardless of what their ideology is, to try to be effective altruists then why they're being effective might be totally different from the conservatives and uh, the leftists. Mm. So I think also there is this interesting thing that I think the hype curve peak for effective altruists has passed. Mm. In some sense, the the, the honeymoon where the the things were flocking in that was very easy to get people have stopped. And uh, there is a lot of critics which is brilliant. One of the greatest moments for transhumanism happened in the early noughties when Francis Fukuyama wrote Our Post-Human mm. Future, mm. which is, in my opinion, one of the best books in favor of transhumanism <laughs> ever. <laughs> He's, of course, arguing that transhumanism is the worst idea we have. We need to fight against this very dangerous idea that is threatening to undermine everything we hold dear. And he's throwing all the arguments he can at uh, transhumanism, They're not all compatible. In fact, he's trying all arguments at the same time because he wants to kind of um, uh, try to convince the reader, which actually makes it rather intellectually unconvincing in many ways. Mm -hmm. But also when somebody of his stature, who is also tied a little bit to George W. Bush uh, administration, uh, states that something is bad, then you get a lot of people just rising up to defend it. And you get a lot of interesting conversation. In the end, I think that was the chance for transhumanists to also mature quite a bit. Yeah, we need to respond to this long list of arguments. Many of them are crappy, but we still need to do a proper response. We can't just hide in our mother's basement uh, all the time. So that was very, very useful. And I think effective altruism might, well, it might still be waiting for its uh, Francis Fukuyama, but I think it's actually useful to be engaged in a lot uh, of uh, debates against people who disagree for various reasons. Mm -hmm. That also creates both weird random allies, 
not always the allies you want. Uh, sometimes you might find that to have a getting absolutely horrible allies that you really want to distance yourself from. Transhumanists have always been quite embarrassed when the New Agers and uh, the ufologists uh, re- declare themselves transhumanists. Um, and we also have this interesting opportunity of seeing what ideas are solid enough to work even when many people don't agree with them. Mm. Because in the end, of course, if you are a true consequentialist and want to actually see improvement in the world, you want to reach that plateau where effective altruism actually works. Not just it's a great idea somebody has or a very cool organization, but actually it's just part of everything. Mm-hmm. I'm conscious of time and that you might want to eat lunch soon. Maybe <laughs> start thinking about wrapping up. Sure. Yeah, well, time itself is a kind of an interesting question. What, what time perspective should one take on things? <laughs> uh, so, so one of my experiences being involved in transhumanism is in the night we're so optimistic and we're hoping for by the uh, 2000, at the very least, we're going to have good anti-aging medicine and the nanomachines should be coming. And then we get the singularity by 2020 or 2030 at the most. Mm. And then it turned out that that was not quite true. Uh, so Ray Kurzweil might be saying 2045, and he still seemed to be holding on to that. But the general realization is, of course, we tend to overestimate how rapidly things can go. In the early part of an exponential curve, it's very, very slow. Mm. And you can kind of see where it could be going, but that doesn't mean it's actually going to grow as fast as you want to. And indeed, quite often, there are random factors slowing things down. In the long run, even a fairly low growth rate totally takes over and changes things. So the web is still transforming the world in a lot of ways. Uh, These days, most documents are published primarily somewhere on the web, maybe Mm. on a private web, maybe on a Google Docs, but they're not primarily on paper or in a computer, at least if they're shared between two people. That is really transforming our idea about documents and communication. We're still discovering what social media can do and what they cannot do. Many of these things are cumulative. We're still kind of reeling from the Industrial Revolution. And in some sense, we're still adjusting to what we messed up with the Agricultural Revolution. So the timing issue is that we quite often believe that our latest, coolest idea is going to be a revolution that is going to transform the world real soon. And that's a mistake. If you can really time when you make your startup or build your organization to fit with the the ideological climate and the new technologies, then you can take off. But that requires a lot of knowledge and honestly, a lot of luck. Mm -hmm. So generally, it needs to take time and we should be planning for the long term future. I think that's one of the most important issues. Yeah, uh, we are not going to win maybe this generation, but the next one. We might say, okay, we're going to make a sustainable civilization and we better hurry up to make it uh, as good as possible. But if it takes 50 years and doesn't do too much damage, that's still a win. Maybe we can't move a galaxy this millennium or this galactic year. Yeah, but the next one. Talking about things that don't turn out quite true, I feel like this is a good segue for our final question, which we ask all our guests. And that is, what is a significant thing that you've recently changed your mind about and why? So one thing that I w- I'm really surprised uh, that actually worked was the travel restrictions that happened in the wake of COVID. Now, to be honest, I think the travel restrictions have not been used uh, that effectively. COVID has been spreading widely anyway. But back in the early 2020, I was having some rather intense arguments with friends online and on Twitter uh, about uh, should you shut down the airline traffic. And uh, I was of the opinion, look, 
we tried doing that for Ebola in Africa, and that was an economic crisis which was really bad for a lot of vulnerable countries. If we do this globally, that's going to be a total disaster. We must not do that. Now, it turns out that shutting down a lot of airline travel actually didn't cause it like that. The difference was partially that many of the very vulnerable countries in Africa, they were very dependent on uh, people traveling across borders. But actually, developed economies have way more resiliency. So if at least the developed world had uh, cut down airline travel quickly enough, and I don't think we would have been able to do it uh, for COVID, actually. Uh, But uh, if we had, then we would probably be able to contain that. So I think we should be more ready to actually do that kind of uh, things. The problem is, of course, we need to have have reliable uh, signals that a new virus has shown up. We need to be cutting links in the global network carefully. And um, there is going to be noise in those signals. So if we shut down the airlines uh, all the time when we see a new virus, we're always going to be shutting them down. And that's probably not going to be good. But I'm kind of surprised how well the world can still work, even though we're electronically connected rather than physically connected. It's an interesting Swedish libertarian argument. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And uh, I love travel. I uh, self-identified very much as a cosmopolitan traveler, uh, having opinions about the best coffee places in San Francisco and Amsterdam and actually being stranded in one place for months at a time I would have imagined that would drive me crazy but of course no I'm not crazier than usual actually there are other ways of handling it still there are many people who've been suffering uh, through uh, COVID especially the extroverts and they're also very loud about that very unhappy about it the funny thing is on the other hand if you look at studies of happiness you find that actually it's been recovering quite well subjective well-being in the US I saw yesterday is about as high as it's been in decades like right now yeah and part of that might be that now we're having more hope that this is actually ending And this is something we know from uh, the Blitz. Uh, A lot of Londoners subjected to uh, missile attacks were still finding life worth living and actually feeling it very meaningful to resist that. And in many places subject to bombings, people were keeping up hope quite well. Is when you lose hope, when that's when society crashes. Mm-hmm. When you get even a smidgen of hope, that can actually make us pull through and adapt. And that's another one of the wonders of human condition that we should cherish and kind of try to amplify. That's a nice note to end on. One last question we ask everyone is what three books or articles, films, podcasts, whatever, would you recommend for anyone interested in finding out about the 15,000 <laughs> things we just talked about? So the Fermi paradox, uh, I think uh, the classic uh, book about it uh, might be Sagan and Shklovsky's book from the 60s about uh, uh, kind of searching for extraterrestrial intelligence. By now, it's really obsolete, but it's so interesting to see how people were thinking about it back then. Uh, there is also this very good uh, modern book by uh, Vaco about uh, the Drake equation. Basically, two chapters for every term, to- talking about what people believed in, in, in the back in before the 1960s and afterwards, how we've been updating. Mm-hmm. And then we have transhumanism. I think one book that has influenced me enormously is Olaf Stapledon's uh, novels, Last and First Men and Star Maker. So Last and First Men is his fictional depiction of the future of the human species and successor species going literally billions of years in the future. And it's a vast scope. It's kind of a classic thing that has influenced science fiction tremendously. And then Star Maker broadens the scope to all intelligence 
not just in the universe, but actually in all other universes too. And all the plot, all I think 15 billion years of a plot in uh, Last and First Men occurs on one page <laughs> inside the Star Maker. Uh, that scope is unmatched, it's unrivaled. Um, it's very dry by modern standards. It's kind of a very different form of science fiction novel because there is no really a protagonist except intelligence itself. But I think as a formative story, it's amazingly good. When it comes to forming my views on transhumanism, I read Ed Regis' um, uh, The Great Mambo Chicken and the Transhuman Condition which is kind of a reportage about the community that would become the uh, transhumanist movement in the late 1980s. It's kind of interesting as a picture of a moment just before it started forming. Uh, and then I was also very influenced by Hans Moravec's Mind Children, which also came out at the same time. An early book taking superintelligence very seriously and kind of pointing out how weird the universe could really, really be. Anders Sandberg, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Anders Sandberg on The Fermi Paradox, Transhumanism, and many, many other things. Uh, as always, if you'd like to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Anders. That's A-N-D-E-R-S. And there you'll find links to all the books and articles that were mentioned, along with further reading. As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Uh, if you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. There's also a star rating form on the top and bottom of the write-up. And you can send suggestions, questions, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly and help us to continue to pay for hosting, you can also leave a tip by following the link at the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.